This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello and welcome to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. Welcoming you to the show. We've got an exciting episode. We're going to talk about the best of season one, volume two. So we're going to pull some of the best interviews from our season of podcasts so far. We've had 13 great episodes so far. This is episode number 14. Uh, Thanks for listening. And if you're looking for sort of the best of, what are some of those best interviews or the highlights or some of the key best practices that we've covered throughout the season, this episode is intended to cover that here today. And if you listen to our last episode, episode number 13, we did the best of season one, volume one. And in that episode, we covered a bunch of client case studies. So we actually had clients on the show and pulled some of the interviews of our clients on the podcast uh, throughout the season one, pulled some of those highlights and focused on best practices from a client's point of view. Today, we're going to shift gears a little bit and still talk about best practices and lessons learned and what it takes to be successful in digital transformation but we're going to talk to some of our consulting team. So it's a little bit different perspective, providing some case studies and examples, but from the consulting side of things. And we've got three particular interviews or segments we're going to focus on here today. Uh, first up, we're going to have Amanda Patton, who is a senior consultant on our team. And she's going to talk through a case study and a, and a client example, a, a recent project we did for a client helping them through their software evaluation and selection process. So she talks through some of the nuances of what we navigated, how we prioritized the requirements of this organization and this particular client, how we narrowed down to a short list, how we ultimately selected the software that was the best fit for this particular client. So we're going to have a great discussion here with Amanda and and play you that clip from earlier in the season. And then we're going to have a second up, we'll have an interview with Dave Beldick, who is a senior manager on our team. And he's got a different perspective or a different angle or a different type of project that he's going to be talking through. In this particular case study that he'll be talking with us here today, uh, it's actually a, a project recovery. So a client hired us in the midst of a troubled or, or challenged implementation of, of an ERP system. And he's going to talk about some of those lessons learned, unpack the case study of what we did, what we first found when we went in to analyze the situation, and ultimately how we turned that around and made some recommendations and put some actions in place to help them get the project back on track. So that'll be the second interview we cover. And then finally, we're going to have a segment with Sarah Stanley-Smith and Tammy Foshi from our team. Um, Sarah is from our UK office. Uh, Tammy is from our office here in the United States where I'm based. And they're going to be talking about change management. And I did an interview with them a few weeks ago just talking about general change management best practices, things you should be thinking about, what are some of the common mistakes, common lessons learned from a change perspective. And uh, we had a really good conversation with them. So I wanted to feature that in this best of episode as well. So stay tuned for all three of those uh, exciting guests here today. And before we jump into the interviews, though, I I wanted to uh, pull a segment from or or some feedback I have from people on social media. So if if you've been listening to the show, you know that 
I'm very active on LinkedIn, among other social media platforms. Um, LinkedIn in particular, I'll pose a lot of questions and try to stimulate conversation and get others to engage to get their feedback or opinions on what makes certain best practices within the transformation world and to learn from other people's lessons learned and that sort of thing. So one of the questions that I posed on LinkedIn, and by the way, if you're not connected with me or if you're not following me on LinkedIn, I highly encourage you to do it. If anything, just so you can be part of this conversation and follow along the conversation when we're asking these sorts of questions. I also post a lot of videos and um, blogs and other types of thought leadership on my LinkedIn profile. So be sure to follow me if you're not already there or connect with me on LinkedIn. But the question I posed here that I think is, is interesting and it, it's a common question we get from clients. So I thought, why not pose the question to people that I'm connected to and others in the industry and other CIOs and executives that have been through similar processes. And that question is, what do you see as the biggest pros and cons of selecting and implementing a very targeted niche technology solution versus a broader ERP system? For example, implementing a CRM system now versus taking longer to potentially implement a full ERP system. So it really gets down to that question or that that ageless, uh, what do you want to call it, the, the long-going discussion or debate around whether single ERP systems are the best answer, which is you know a single platform to tie together your entire operations, or if more of a best-of-breed approach might be better. And so that's a big part of why I posed the question, was try to really get a feel for what people are thinking or what their experiences have been around you know, the pros and cons and the trade-offs of the single, broad, big ERP system versus more narrow focused niche solutions like CRM or human capital management, uh, warehouse management, supply chain management, business intelligence, all these different tools that are designed to do specific things. And they're designed to do those things very well versus a broader, bigger ERP system that can certainly provide some benefit as far as providing a single unified source of truth and a single operating platform and a single set of workflows and business processes. But by definition, ERP is trying to be everything to everyone, and it's not going to be everything to everyone within any given organization. So you have that sort of trade-off to make there. So that's really the, the age-old discussion or debate we wanted to have, and, and we did have on, on social media. And just looking at some of the, the comments we had here, um, we had uh, jo- Jordan Park responded um, to my post, on, which was just uh, in the last few days I, I posted this question. Um, his, his comment was, in my opinion, you need both. ERP is great for improving operational aspects of a business, but generally when it comes to customer relationship management, you need a platform that is purpose-built. Digital transformation is like building a puzzle. It starts with ERP, then you add the CRM piece for sales-driven organizations. Um, or I'm sorry, he says, then you add the CRM piece, but for sales organizations, you might start the other way around. So start with CRM and then add ERP later on. Then you start adding marketing automation, embedded AI, analytics reporting, and so forth. And then, uh, so his, his, he's sort of uh, advocating that, that more modular phase rollout of core back office ERP, and then you add on different competencies or capabilities on top of that. And then Jordan goes on to say that too many companies think that buying a single great system is going to revolutionize, revolutionize their business and lead to massive profits, but that's just not the case. Most organizations who've really used digital transformation to excel have realized that it's an amalgamation of systems and new ways of optimizing work that allow them to excel. I guess this is why I'm so partial to Dynamics, its stack of technologies, um, et cetera. So he goes on to uh, promote why he thinks Microsoft Dynamics is is, uh, 
the best solution for that. But sort of setting aside specific technologies and just looking at it from a technology agnostic perspective, it's still a, a very relevant question around, you know, do we want that single ARP system? Do we do it more modular? Do we do it more incrementally? Do we um, just accept this the CRM and the warehouse management and the AI and business intelligence and some of the things he mentions, do you just accept the capabilities of ERP or do you go out and find other solutions that could do it better than a core ERP system can do? And of course, you know, the big software vendors like Microsoft and SAP and Oracle, they're trying to make this a moot point by making their ERP system so good, so robust, so broad, so deep that you don't necessarily have to make that trade-off. But I think what you're seeing in the marketplace is technology is changing so quickly that you're always going to have these little upstarts that are able to focus on one little area of enterprise-wide technology and be able to handle it really well. And so I think you're constantly going to have this conflict or this push and pull between do we want a single ERP system that maybe can't quite do everything we want it to do or do we want to look for multiple solutions that do exactly what we want it to do but now we've created some architectural and technological complexity by now trying to tie together multiple systems through integration and certainly data management becomes an issue and cybersecurity becomes an issue when you've got that many systems talking to one another. So that's the constant ongoing challenge or trade-off that the organizations always face. So um, interesting perspective there from from Jordan in terms of what he thinks uh, the right answer is there. And then I also received a comment here from Jasper Harlar, who said that the market has moved to a more loosely coupled solution using integration tools to tie together best-of-breed solutions. Instead of an ERP being all-encompassing, clients are selecting niche tools to perform specific tasks, either because they're better standalone solutions or they have time invested in the processes around the solutions and don't want to re-engineer the entire process. Um, We use an integration tool purpose-built for this to stitch together standalone solutions. And then he goes on to talk about the, the specific technology that he uses. So again, I think there's another advocation or a, a... person that's, that's kind of voting for or saying that, you know, the best answer might be best of breed solutions. And I think, you know, one thing to note too, is even if you think you're going with a single ERP system, oftentimes you really are sort of dealing with the best of breed environment without necessarily knowing it. Uh, for example, we see a lot of clients that implement um, SAP S4HANA, for example, a lot of, a lot of our larger clients are more multinational clients will implement S4HANA, but they think that they're getting a core ERP system or a single ERP system, and they sort of are. They're getting a, a single core system, but then oftentimes they end up having bolt-ons on top of that, and those bolt-ons are oftentimes owned by SAP. Uh, a lot of times people will default to um, other SAP products if they're an SAP customer. So, for example, uh, success factors on the human capital management side, Ariba on the procurement side. Um, you have Qualtrics on the sort of customer experience and uh, metric-driven types of things. Um, they also have, you know, BI tools and other types of solutions that are technically uh, best of breed, but they're owned by SAP. So it creates this perception that you're getting a single vendor with a single solution. The reality is that best of breed approach is is sort of permeating into even those single vendor types of solutions as well. And it raises a whole nother host of questions too, which is if you have something like an SAP, do you necessarily need other SAP products to bolt on to S4HANA or could you go just look for other best of breed options? And I think that's a, a decision point or a, a trade-off that a lot of organizations don't realize that they have, that they can they can make that, that sort of trade-off and they do have that flexibility. So, you know, I think that's a, a key thing is it's, it's a lot of times not either or. A lot of times it's, it's sort of a gray area where, yeah, you're leaning towards a single ERP system, but 
oftentimes you inevitably end up with something other than just one single ERP system, especially if you're a, uh, in a very specific industry or you have a highly regulated product or if you're in a regulated industry or if you're dealing with government. Um, or, if, for example, in the U.S., cannabis is becoming legalized, but it's heavily regulated. So there are certain systems that you have to use if you're a cannabis provider. So it's just a little things like that you have to think about is what what are those legacy systems you might have to maintain for regulatory reasons or what are those systems that you know you're going to have to retain because an ERP system won't be able to do what you need it to do the way your current systems do. So um, that's always the, the big trade-off to be made there. And then uh, finally, uh, another comment that I just cherry-picked from the thread uh, here on LinkedIn is from Akil Ashik, and he says, I think now it's better off to have best-of-breed solutions. For example, one for accounting and finance, one for HCM, one for sales and marketing, etc. So in this particular thread, certainly not scientific by any means. It's not a scientific data point, but everyone that commented on this thread um, on this particular day that I posted this question seemed to lean towards the, the best-of-breed uh, option and approach. Now, I will, I will note that a couple of the people that commented uh, in the thread, including some of the comments I didn't read, um, a lot of times they were coming at it from a kind of pushing a product or a certain tech stack that they either support or are selling or whatever. So there might be a little bit of bias in there. But I think in general, you know, I think it's those are pretty agnostic comments that uh, span across uh, technologies or independent of technology. So something very worth uh, keeping in mind. And, and I guess, you know, when you're going through your evaluation, the key thing is to really think about what is it we need uh, as an organization? What are our biggest priorities? Uh, what kind of IT support do we have or envision having in, th in the future internally? Because if you do a best of breed type of model, you're probably going to need more of a solution architecture type of skill set and a data management and an integration sort of skill set internally to be able to manage those uh, patchwork of, of systems. Um, not to say you wouldn't need that if you go with a single ERP system, but it just magnifies the need for strong internal IT competencies if you if you have a best of breed model. And so really just prioritizing your requirements, making sure that you uh, have a, a good understanding of what sort of IT competencies you plan to have in the future, and really just understanding what the pros and cons and the risks and the trade-offs are. There's really no good answer. There's no easy answer. No matter what direction you go in this whole decision, you're going to end up with some sort of risk or trade-off that you're giving up in exchange for the upside. So that's the key is to really prioritize your your needs and, and your priorities in that way. So thanks to everyone who who commented on this post and other posts that I put out there on LinkedIn, and we'll try to we'll try to pull together or pull in more of these threads into our our podcast here just to to make it a little more engaging. And again, if you have uh, if you follow or if you don't follow me on LinkedIn, be sure you are following me. And and if you are following me, I'd love to hear any comments you have or, or questions that you think should be posed there on LinkedIn. I'd love to ask the global audience about that as well. So um, so that covers that that topic here today. We're going we're gonna to shift gears right after we take a break. We're going to come back from the break and we're going to play for you that interview that we had with Amanda Patton talking about ERP software selection for a mid-sized distribution company uh, that we are working with. It's a client of ours here at Third Stage and she's going to talk about some of the lessons learned and some of the takeaways from that. So uh, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. 
Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Okay, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. Appreciate you watching and listening in here. You can find us every Wednesday morning on YouTube. We, we go live with new episodes every Wednesday uh, morning U.S. time. Uh, it's actually at 10 a.m. Uh, Eastern time in the United States, which is, I believe, uh, 3 p.m. London time and 10 p.m. Hong Kong time or 11 p.m. Hong Kong time. I'm sorry. Um, but check it out on YouTube. You can listen to it anytime after that as well. But if you'd like to watch it live with us, uh, that's when we premiere on YouTube. You can also listen to our audio-only format on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, Google, iHeartRadio, wherever you wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find us. So be sure to subscribe to us and uh, give us a rating too, if you wouldn't mind. Just uh, especially if you like it, we'd love to get your uh, four or five star rating, preferably five star. If if you enjoy the show, you're getting some value out of it. We'd love to get either the thumbs up on YouTube and or a subscription uh, and a rating from you on uh, your favorite podcast platform. So I'm excited for our next guest or to bring on uh, sort of a, an interview from the past, one of the early episodes of season one of Transformation Ground Control. Um, this was an interview that I did several weeks ago with Amanda Patton, and we talked about a software selection project that we were doing with a client or that we had recently uh, done for a client. And it's a mid-sized distribution organization that was looking for new ERP systems to replace their legacy system. They had gone through a great amount of change and growth, very successful organization, uh, breakneck type of growth, and really outgrew their old systems and needed something to help them scale for, for the future ongoing growth. And so Amanda, in her interview, talks about how we went about the whole process, how we defined requirements, how we prioritized, how we narrowed down to a short list, how we ultimately landed on a specific solution. And she actually gets into the specific types of vendors that we looked at and ultimately what the recommendation was. So it's a pretty interesting conversation just to hear you know, how we went through the process and how we made some of those comparisons and what some of the key decision criteria were. So all that being said, I'll just jump right in and, and replay you this clip. Uh, Amanda, thanks for being here on the show. Eric, thanks for having me. Sure. So we, uh, before we get into this software evaluation, software selection case study, I just want to talk a little bit about your background and your career journey and the transition you've made recently from working with software vendors in the past and now becoming a consultant at Third Stage. And I know you joined the company last year. So how has that transition been? And I, and I want to talk about it in the context, especially as we get into this discussion around software evaluation, but you, you have a pretty unique perspective having been on the vendor side. Um, what, how has that transition gone and what are some of your observations being a consultant working for third stage, being independent and agnostic versus working for the software vendors? Uh, good question. It's definitely different. Um, it's a much broader perspective on this side, I will say. Uh, coming from the, the vendor perspective, we were looking 
uh, at a, sp a specific you know set of functionality and, and what it is that we can do and kind of looking at it through that lens and it was rather limited I suppose and then when you come to this side you really my my view is expanded uh, because I'm not tied to any particular technology I'm not really looking at it through the lens of the solution I'm more looking at it from you know what does the client need what is the outcome we're trying to get to and taking in a lot of different factors um, a lot of the technologies um, can do a lot of the same things but there are more important factors kind of a bigger picture view so I think that's the main difference is uh, instead of knowing everything about one solution you need to know a little bit about all the solutions and most importantly really get to the bottom of what the client's trying to achieve in the end yeah coming at it from a different perspective and uh, you probably have a unique i would imagine you have a pretty unique understanding of how software vendors work and how they try to sell their software versus what the client may or may not need absolutely yes yeah definitely well, good. i think it's easy to see that i have i have sympathy for what they're going through and the job they've been tasked with, but also, um, you know, having the ability to kind of see through some of the sales tactics and really get down to uh, the functionality and what the customer's after. So, yeah, you, you, you're, uh, you're onto them. You understand the head games they're playing in, in the sales process. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, so I know since you've joined third stage, uh, you've, you've been involved with a number of different types of projects, including a number of uh, software evaluations and selections. And so today, we wanted to talk in particular about one that you're working on right now. You're sort of right in the thick of it. You just finished demos last week from what I understand. And you're sort of, you know, I haven't reached a decision yet or made the, we haven't made the final recommendation to this client yet, but I thought it'd be a good time to have the discussion of kind of what are you seeing and, and what are you experiencing? But before we dive into some of those details, maybe give us just a little bit of background. I, you know, we can't reveal the name of the client for confidentiality reasons, but what are, how would you describe the client at a high level as far as what they do, how many employees they have? Just give us some general context here. Sure. So they are a relatively new company and growing quite, quite rapidly um, and uh, have on, under 100 employees. And I would call them an e-commerce platform distribution company. Uh, in terms of, you know, what it is that they do and, and bring to the market. And so, you know, with that being a relatively new company, I think their perspective is a little different than some of the other clients uh, that I'm used to working with. So I, um, you know, looking at their tremendous growth and looking at the ability to ability to scale, uh, but also stay unique and stay, you know, in the core competencies and the things that make them unique in the marketplace. That's a, that's a tough balance uh, as you start to get bigger. So um, one of the things that they said early on was that they were, they were growing up. Uh, and so part of that is that your technology has to also grow up with you. So that's the challenge. Yeah. So what is the, what, what is it that makes them unique in terms of you know, their business model and, or, or the organization itself. Um, how would you describe that? I mean, they are very modern um, and open-minded and uh, tech savvy and kind of have this do-it-yourself mentality and of wanting to, you know, build and have creative latitude and, and have the autonomy to create technology that reflects their process, reflects their customer, reflects their market. And, even COVID recently, you know, as a as an example, having to pivot and having the ability to then turn around and, and make updates and customizations and, and alterations to their homegrown um, 
application that they use, right? Because they own it and they built it. And so that's a quick and easy thing to do. And that's not always the case, right? If you are on someone else's technology. I think too that um, they're very engaged and very creative. And so a lot of times companies, you know, have done things a certain way for a really long time or the technology, you just kind of expect this is what the technology is going to look like. We're going to have to sort of, you know, fit ourselves into that. And that's not really their perspective. Uh, they're very unique and very nuanced in what they bring to the market, the way they, uh, the way they service their customers. And so uh, there's a lot of, there are a lot of challenges because it doesn't necessarily fit into, you know, the box or the process. It's, as, as we say, but um, also a lot of great opportunities to learn, to be creative, and to try new things. Right. So, and I actually want to come back to some follow-up questions on, on that point about their unique culture and, and the unique operations and, and even some of the um, current systems that they have in place that are currently being strained as, as they grow, but we'll come back to that. But before I get to that, what maybe just to back up a little bit, what, what is the scope or what is our role uh, on this project working with this client? Our role is to help them evaluate technology that would help their business to become more efficient and to scale with their growth. Um, they had, you know, Forex growth in 2018, just like I said, growing really, really fast. Um, and to help them look at their process, right? So that's a separate thing of, you know, workshops really talking through what does your process look like now? Um, what is it going to look like in the future? What changes could you be making to make those more efficient, streamline some of that uh, from a process perspective? And then, you know, how does that marry up to the technology you're currently using and the technology that you're, you know, evaluating? So our job is to help them really just take a big picture view of everything, right? Process, the technology that's available, and also really listening to what it is that they want. Uh, like I said, they aren't traditional. It's not like they've had the same system in place for 20 years, and now they're looking to swap it out for a different system. This is um, a young, creative, tech-savvy company who's built their own technology. And so they want to have um, autonomy to a point and the ability to continue to have some control over over their technology, but they know that they need the structure of an ERP system, a single source of truth, if you will, in place, if they are going to continue to keep up with their growth and um, market share. Right, that's interesting. So with this homegrown mentality and the ownership of the technology they have now, what have some of the challenges been in terms of either you know, outgrowing the system or, or facing limitations? What are some of those those challenges that we've observed in our assessment of them so far? So I would say the amount of manual work, you know, probably out of the gate, that's the main pain point is when you're small and you're just starting out, it, that's fine, but they've grown so quickly. And um, to, to be able to keep up with that growth they, they've had to really work harder and harder and harder to maintain it and to expand it and to make sure that it can keep up with, you know, what they needed to keep up with. They're having a really hard time um, synthesizing all the data. There's, there's push and pull and data coming in from, you know, all kinds of different tools. And 
having data isn't really that useful if it, if it can't tell you the story that, that you need to know to make business decisions. And so that's certainly um, one of the big challenges. There are a lot of complexities around managing 3PL. Uh, we hear that a lot. And so just understanding the logistics and how you work with that, how you pull, push and pull the data uh, in a way that helps you to have you know accurate information. And like I said, real-time data that you can make decisions off of, um, not having to spend two weeks pulling reports and running Excel and doing workarounds and all those kinds of things. So, and then customer happiness, right? The ability to look into a say, here's where your order is. This is why it's delayed. You know, having really good information because they're extremely customer centric and they want to make sure that they have real-time information and that they're keeping their customers happy. Um, and then, you know, just continuing to see the, the growth has been monumental and they know they have Right. So what what is it that in the market or if, and I don't know if you know the answer to this question, but what is driving their growth? What's, what's fueling that, that 4X growth that they experienced last year? Is it it's, it's just lack of competition in their in their niche or something they're doing differently that's, that's fueling that growth? I think, I think it's a combination of factors. Um, you know, as some of the order and old ways of, of shopping and and doing um, doing business have changed, you know, people are more likely to to go online and to get really good information. And if you're used to dealing with Amazon or you know the like, um, it's you can have something to your house the next day. You can have you know where it is. You know when it's going to be there. You competitive from a pricing perspective. Um, so the way we shop as people as a nation, you know, has changed a lot. And so that has fed into their success and their um, ability to pull together just tons of information and really curate a process and a, a, an experience really for the customer so that you don't have to spend so much time looking at 17 different websites or you know uh, product reviews and all these different things it's it's all pulled together to make the shopping experience better for the customer um, and i think you know to be able to do that and then to have all the reviews and all the information there in one place is just one of the reasons and then of course with covid um, which has happened to companies, the online shopping is, is pretty much how we live now um, for the most part, right? And so a lot of traffic who would have preferred to go to a brick and mortar to do some of this is, are going to be are going to be online. So that's another reason. Um, and I will say some of the, the brick and mortar um, stores where some of their uh, products would be, you know, have, have gone away or they are going away. And um, they're being kind of absorbed into into a different model, and so all of that has led to their ability to grow. Right. Yeah. And it's it's interesting to hear you describe this growth and the evolution and the fast evolution of this company. And on, on one hand, that requires a certain amount of flexibility and entrepreneurial spirit and and uh, adaptability. But then on the other hand, you also mentioned that they want to add structure and they want to. Um, use technology to help standardize or, or structure some of their their uh, business different. So uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when I, we come back, I want to ask you some more questions around that and just uh, what we're seeing in particular with the different types of technologies we're evaluating for them right now and where some of the um, strengths and weaknesses are. But before we do that, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more transformation ground control. And I'm here with Amanda Patton. We'll be right back. 
aiming for transformation success, turn a third stage consulting group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Amanda, welcome back. We're talking about, before the break, the software evaluation we're going through with this client and some of the unique challenges that they're trying to address as a result of their transformation. They've gone through quite a bit of growth and they're an entrepreneurial company, very customer centric. And at the same time, they're trying to introduce technology to provide some structure and an ability to scale. So with all that being said, and that sort of high level current state assessment, where did we land in our shortlist? What, what sort of shortlist do we recommend uh, to the client and where are we at in the process? So we just wrapped up demos last week and I'll, I'll just kind of start by saying this was different as I've alluded to earlier in the conversation, they are unique. And um, the reason for that is that they have grown a lot of technology, you know, on their own and a lot of that works for them. And then they're starting as grown, uh, starting to notice some limitations and um, asking questions like, how sustainable is this? How long can we continue to do this? That kind of thing. It's becoming more of a heavy lift for the, uh, the tech team. And so our shortlist had a mixture of what we would consider, you know, more kind of more traditional core ERP, um, like Sage and NetSuite, and then a couple of open source options too. We wanted to look at Odoo and ERP next and try to understand on the spectrum, um, you know, solutions that would offer structure and a single source of truth that you're going to get out of an ERP system with some autonomy and the option if you want your tech team uh, to continue to be able to kind of build some of that out and do some of those customizations. So that's before that we kind of landed on from a, from a shortlist perspective and we did want a mixture of different options. We could really delve into what that was going to look like for them. Yeah, it almost seems like hearing you talk, it almost seems like there's a decision to be made around, you know, how much do we want to push or change the the culture and the operations, um, you know, with the open source options with Odoo and ERP Next, obviously that's going to be more aligned with a more flexible model and X3 and especially NetSuite is going to be more structural and more, if you're moving more towards a standard a standard model. Has that been a key discussion point or has that been a consideration in the evaluation so far? It is a huge discussion point, one that has been going on since the very beginning and continues uh, to this day and, and will, I, I'm sure. And a lot more clarity has been uncovered as we've continued workshops and discussions and, you know, looked at the pros and cons on, on both sides. And uh, we actually called it, a, we've been calling it a strategic fork in the road because regardless of what system you select and implement, there are some strategy decisions to be made um, within the company. And so those are some some tough questions where, you know, 
have to look at the strategy, the culture, the future, the growth, and all of the uh, different things. And in some cases, it may be worth making a change to process. Um, and other times, you know, some of the pain points could be addressed by one of these systems. Some of the pain points are not going to be addressed by any technology, right? It's a people situation. It's a process situation. So really taking the time to have conversations and, and workshops and make sure we're engaging everyone um, across different functional areas, across um, different, you know, roles and levels of the organization just to make sure that there's a lens for every part of the business that we're not just looking at it, you know, from a technical standpoint or a people standpoint or a process standpoint. And right. that really is uh, one of the biggest challenges is the, you know, the strategic fork in the road. There are some big decisions to be made. Uh, the client has made quite a few that have helped um, kind of narrow the path and help us understand what it is they're really trying to get to, but there's still some work to be done in that, in that regard. Hmm. Interesting. So I get, there's two different directions. Speaking of fork in the road, there's two different paths I could take the, the next question, but I'll, I'll, I'll start with the, maybe the technology itself and come back to the organizational piece of it. But on the pure technology side, um, what, given the short list that you guys have, the fact that you just had demos last week, what are some of the general observations you have as it relates to this client and, and how those different systems compare to one another? So the demos ended up being x3 and netsuite and um you know odoo did really well in the rfp analysis but make it to demo because we were kind of having conversations about the structure that needs to be in place and not having so much onus on the product engineering team um, as they move forward and continue to grow and, and the need to know because what that means is you're going to have to keep hiring and adding to that infrastructure to be able to support that. Um, and as we took a closer look, we, we um, while Odoo is an, an incredible solution and we found a lot of really great, valuable things about it, um, some of the internal discussions within the client sort of kind of pulled us in a different direction. So because of those dis discussions and, and workshops and such, we ended up with X3 and NetSuite. And getting to see the demonstrations from each of them really, um, gave the client uh, kind of more options, right? Trying to understand, you know, if, if there's a, a scale or a spectrum, there was, you know, ERP next and Odoo and then and then X3, and then we kind of get over to NetSuite in terms of the, um, I don't think rigidity is the right word, but, you know, it's a structure, right? It's, it's there and this is sort of, this is kind of what it is. Um, and, Great demonstration, great functionality. Uh, we know, you know, plenty of clients who who use NetSuite. But in the case of this this uh, client, you know, the ability to take those applications and customize them. So it's adding two things of yes, we have a single source of truth. We the you know all the functionality you would expect out of the box from an ERP system, but we also have the flexibility to uh, make changes, customization. And so if we need to pivot quickly due to the market, the customer, the just whatever's going on, they are able to do that internally without going back to code and having to go through bringing in additional consultants or, you know, some of those kinds of things. So I think that the ability to be more, we saw a little bit more of that with, with X3. Um, and then, of course, there are conversations about, um, you know, all the integrations and what does that look like? And how does each vendor 
you know, work with those kinds of things. And at the end of the day, is it, what is it going to look like in the day of life of the people who work for this company? Um, you know, walk me through this scenario. And that's what a lot of the demonstrations were. A lot of very unique and nuanced scenarios that had to be uh, addressed. And so, you know, in my estimation, um, X3 had a little more flexibility from that perspective. Right. Uh, but both did great. Both did great demonstrations and have great. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like when, uh, you know, you look at, you did a good job describing that spectrum or the continuum that, you know, Odoo and ERP Next have over on the, the flexible open source side. And then NetSuite's kind of the other extreme with the more standard, you know, mature processes and that sort of thing. And, you know, the interesting thing about that is no matter which direction they go, and it sounds like, you know, they may end up somewhere in the middle, but if you go to either extreme there, there's going to be some sort of trade-off. Either you're going to own, the onus is going to be on your IT department to own and and maintain the technology more than you might with a NetSuite. Or if you go with a NetSuite, that's going to put more of an organizational impact uh, or put more pressure on organizational change management with those standardized processes, especially given their entrepreneurial nature. Yes, definitely. And I think that the trade-off is the losing some autonomy for some more of the structure uh, so that we've got these repeatable processes and the single source of truth and this, you know, data that's going to start to really tell a story over time and, and that. So then that was another, uh, you know, part of the internal conversations that needed to happen um, with control over the technology. It's also work for your team. And how much work do you want to have and for how long? And is it scalable with the growth that you're experiencing? Um, at some point, that's going to, that economy, that's not going to, probably make a whole lot of sense in the long run. So, right. So I think you've touched on this a little bit, but maybe dig in if we can dig in a little bit more when you think about change management and how this project and this overall implementation or transformation will affect this client. And I, and I know we don't know the technology yet. We don't know, you know, we haven't made a formal recommendation yet. They haven't made a decision, but in general, what do you, what would you anticipate the change management challenges being some of the biggest change management issues or challenges that this particular client will, will need to face? I, mean, I will say that this client has been really engaged, uh, really engaged, really excited, you know, a lot of input. And so that is really good from an OCM perspective. That's a really good place to be where you've got a lot of, you know, engagement. So they started off on a, on a really strong, um, uh, you know, from, from that perspective, really strong. But I would say too, that because this is a newer company and you have a lot of people who the demographic of this company is used to very, you know, new, modern um, technology, as opposed to um, some of us who, you know, maybe are used to more traditional technologies. And um, right. I think that's a part of it too, is if, if, the employees of a client have been through ERP, um, you know, implementations before, or they're accustomed to those types of technologies. This isn't a new language, but if you're coming from a world where you haven't worked with that, or you haven't been through a selection and implementation before, a lot of the terminology and the process, and a lot of it would would seem foreign, um, and it may be even a little uh, corporate or, you know, uh, restraining or, or, you know, that kind of thing. And so that to me will be one of the biggest challenges is to understand that this is 
tool to help, um, you know, stabilize and um, kind of mature their process as a company too. And, you know, they said it themselves, they, they're growing up, right? Um, and so part of that is kind of making sure that you have the technology in place to, to support what you're doing now and what you're going to be doing in the future. And um, I would say to training, uh, just making sure that, that that's being communicated and that people are being offered training um, and the rationale behind the training, right? This is a very creative, technically savvy, curious group of people, and they want to understand the why and what's the impact and, you know, all of those types of things. So explaining the big picture instead of, you know, just do this because, like, like you find in some corporate environments, more of a conversation, pulling people in and getting buy-in and keeping them excited about, um, at the end of the day, this is going to make your life easier. It may not seem like it now, but but that is, you know, that is the goal. It's also going to position the company for, you know, long-term success uh, in the market. But I think getting over the, um, you know, it's it's the technology they use now is is fun and exciting, and it's like all the shiny things, you know, in the tech world uh, versus kind of getting into something that's a little more mature, a little more, um, you know, predictable. And so I think that will be that will be the big bridge. Yeah. And you're 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 kind of underscoring a, a really important point about software evaluation in general for, for organizations is that there's no one size fits all answer in this client has such a unique culture, unique business model, uh, so much different than other clients of ours, for example, that are manufacturing companies that have been around for a hundred years and they have pretty well established processes. It's just, you know, two very different worlds and two very different evaluations and outcomes you're gonna get, um, which I find really interesting. It's fun. Yeah. It's so to, to summarize then, if, if I'm a organization that's thinking about a digital transformation or thinking about new technology or software for my business, what are some of the biggest points of, uh, or the biggest recommendations, the most important recommendations you might make to me as a, as a company that's about to start this sort of journey? Well, I think one of the things is to start with the foundation, you know, to really, and it, I think a lot of times this can be, this process gets overwhelming and complicated really quickly. Um, you start doing research and you're watching videos and you're comparing things and it gets, it gets a little uh, overwhelming and people get out ahead of themselves, I think, sometimes. And so for me, it's to start with the foundation of like what defines success. You know, what is it that we're trying to achieve? And getting on the same page about that. Um, and also asking, is what we're doing now sustainable? You know, is, is what we're doing working? Um, you know, are we being reactive or proactive to the market and the changes? And I think a lot of companies have had this demonstrated for them or, you know, some good, some bad on how they pivoted and how they were able to react and, and what um, this kind of like with COVID, how, you know, what that brought in and what it exposed. And in the long run, it'll probably be a really good thing, uh, even though a little bit painful sometimes. I think also making sure that you're kind of demystifying, decomplicating uh, the process, right? And just getting down to facts of, you know, what is it that we're trying to achieve? Um, and then taking things, my, my final advice would just be to phase, you know, take things in, in uh, small bites, <laughs> you know, and 
and we talk about this all the time at third stage, but really looking at the process in the current state and making sure that you have a really good, healthy understanding of what that is and knowing that no technology is going to come in and magically fix things, um, that it'll be a joint effort from, from you know, the technology side, the process, and the people. Um, and I do have one more thing that kind of pops up is that the subject matter experts need access to the to the process, right? The buy-in, the opinions, the day in the life, and really understanding what it looks like. Uh, because if you're an executive, you may just see, you know, the reports and you may be a sliver of it. But when you talk to some of the, the subject matter experts, experts in the functional area owners, um, the, the inefficiencies that are happening in the company um, due to kind of the process and the technology challenges um, would would make you know an executive's head spin if they really knew some of the inefficiencies and you know the time suck and the frustration and, and maybe some of the inaccuracies and things like that. Um, so that was kind of a long list, but that's those are the things that kind of stand out to me. Yeah, you, you cover the whole spectrum there from strategy down to you know the subject matter experts and kind of what's happening on the front lines there. And I think that's a, you know, a good reminder for executives that might be listening that this isn't just a, a real simple technology replacement. This is you know, messing with people's lives, with their jobs, with the way you do business, the way you interact with your customers, all that stuff's going to be impacted. So, well, good. Well, I appreciate you being on the show here, Amanda. I really appreciate the, the time you spent here today. Yeah, that was fun. Thank you. You bet. Thank you. So we're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find us on YouTube every Wednesday. Every Wednesday, you can also find new episodes on your favorite audio-only path podcast platform of choice, Apple Music, Google, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can also just stream it on Podbean if you if you don't have a podcast uh, app that you use. You just listen to it online and stream it on the Podbean West website. Just search for uh, Transformation Ground Control. Um, excited to bring on our next guest, guest who's Dave Beldick. We're going to talk about uh, lessons from a project failure and a recovery that we were hired to come in and fix a ERP implementation for. And before I get to Dave, though, and, and kind of replay that interview from earlier uh, this last season on transformation ground control, I want to pull up another question that had, I had posed on uh, LinkedIn recently. And I talked early at the beginning of the episode about the whole best of breed versus single ERP system debate or, or trade-off. And this is a little bit different question. This is more focused on business processes and, and how you address 
business processes as part of your digital transformation. We oftentimes have the question of, do you do you spend a lot of time up front defining your business processes or do you wait until you pick the technology and implement the technology and then the technology sort of drives you and directs you with your business processes? Um, if you do define your business processes up front, how much time do you spend on your as-is versus your your uh, 2B business processes? Those are all tough decisions that a lot of companies get tangled up in. And there's a lot of misinformation and misleading guidance that comes out from the industry because the industry, if you think about it, software vendors and system integrators, it's in their best interest to see you sort of bypass and skip that whole business process piece until you've picked their software and until you've hired them to come in and help you implement implement it because that's going to create more work for them and that's going to speed up the time that you'll be able to, uh, that you'll be paying them sooner. So there's a, there's quite a bit of bias in that whole decision process, or at least how system integrators and software vendors typically advise organizations on that decision process. And so we always like to look at it more from a technology agnostic, independent objective perspective and look at, you know, what's right for a particular organization. And we have seen in general that organizations should spend some amount of time on business processes up front, even before they've selected the software and to a greater degree, define it in a little bit more detail before they start implementing whatever the selected solution is. Now, there's a slippery slope there, though, or a fine line you have to navigate because you don't want to get too far down in the weeds of overanalyzing and defining current state processes when those are going to change pretty dramatically. But you do need to have some sort of understanding of where you're starting on your journey so that as you look to the future and where you're headed with your new technology and with your digital roadmap, you have a clear sense of where you're starting and where you're headed. And the only way to get a good sense of where you're starting is to spend some time looking at your current state and analyzing the pain points and opportunities for improvement so that you can really have a clear vision of how you want to deploy new technologies and process and people improvements to enable uh, your, your transformation. But that's, you know, that's, those, that's broadly speaking. Now we have to figure out, well, how much time do we spend on each of these things, each of these aspects of business processes. And that's why we asked the question, or I asked the question on LinkedIn of, is a deep review of your processes really necessary before undergoing a digital transformation? And I also asked, can you expect that simply by moving to a better, more modern technology, most process problems will go away once the new technology, once the new technology is utilized? So in other words, do you need to spend time up front uh, defining how you want your processes to look in the future? Or can you just rely on the technology to sort of drive your business processes for you? And um, I'll come back to you know some of my additional thoughts on that. But first, I'll, I'll highlight some of the comments that we received or some of the uh, responses we got from this question. Um, and the first uh, person that responded that, that I thought was a very crisp, concise response, and, and I apologize because, I, because I'm 90% certain I'm going to butcher his name. Um, I think it's uh, Jero Andres Perdomo Tovar is his name. Um, he's from Colombia, and he says, "I would go a higher level. I would do a higher level of abstraction and analyze the strategic model and the business capabilities." So he's advocating for maybe not so much focusing on business processes, but focusing on strategic model and what business capabilities you have and what you're trying to develop. I think that's a good starting point. I think you need to go a little deeper than that, but that certainly is a, a really important overarching uh, statement or um, framework that's important to to start with. Um, and then actually, uh, Ryan Thomas responded to Jero's, uh, comment and said, agreed, if there's not a clear business strategy in place, there's nothing concrete to align the software with and decisions 
where a given advantage must be weighted against another advantage. And those are difficult to make without having that clear strategic um, direction or definition or clarity. And I think that's a really good point because you do have to have that clear sense of where you're headed and what it is you're trying to accomplish with your, with your transformation in order to be effective in evaluating technologies and picking the technologies, defining your implementation roadmap, and then ultimately uh, deploying the technologies. If you have a good understanding of what your strategic capabilities are and your strategic direction and you have alignment on that, that's going to make your implementation a lot easier uh, longer term. Another uh, comment here is from Turker Tunali, or Tunali, I'm not sure if it's Tunali, Tunali, um, but he mentions that absolutely no, most problems will not go anywhere once new technology is utilized. It's still about the people, so reviewing business processes matter, but how deep you go is another question. Um, and I think that's a great point, I completely agree. You do want to focus on processes and people, but you don't want to go so deep in the weeds that you're overanalyzing, overthinking how you currently do things in your old system down at the transactional level of detail. That stuff doesn't matter, but you do need to know those overarching business processes and strategic workflows, and those have to be clearly defined so that you have the right prioritization and definition of business requirements, and then ultimately you have uh, a clear roadmap for how you're going to implement technology and what you want the technology to help you improve and enable with your with your business processes so it's a again it's a fine line you want to be you know define your high level processes but not get so far in the weeds that you're 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 just slicing hairs and over analyzing something that's going to go away but at the same time you want to resist that resist that temptation to buy into what vendors and system creators often say which is don't worry about your processes just deploy our technology and we'll help you solve the world's problems because that's not true that doesn't happen and it doesn't work it's highly ineffective and it's a root cause of failure. So it's part of why so many transformations fail is because they haven't defined their processes and what they want to be when they grow up. Software vendor comes in, system integrator, the VAR comes in, whoever it is comes in to help implement. And one of two things happens. Either they have no direction on how they're going to deploy the technology because the technology is so flexible and can handle basic workflows in a multitude of ways. So they end up um, either not having any direction, so they end up having to decide for themselves. The, the consultants themselves have to decide how they think they should deploy technology, or they wait for you to make the decision on how you want to deploy the technology, but the meter is running on their time and money, and their hourly rates are starting to add up while you're trying to decide what you want to be and you grow up. So the more you can spend some time up front doing that, the better off you're going to be, and the better off you're going to uh, make better use and more targeted use of your system integrator and your software vendor. And you look at why so many organizations spend way too much time and money on their implementations. It's oftentimes because they jump right into an implementation, bring on the system integrator way before they're ready. And the system integrator is billing you by the hour, whether you're ready or not. And so while you're making decisions, you know, they're, they're charging you uh, for that time. So that that's the phenomena that often leads to cost overruns and uh, implementation failure. So that's just something to be aware of as you think about business processes. It's it's not just a business process decision. It's also a project governance decision. It's a time, cost, and risk decision. It, it relates to a lot of different aspects of the transformation. It also relates to organizational change management. So if you spend some time up front defining your current state and also what you want your future state to be at a, at a high level, that's going to help you start to identify how the organization is going to have to change and what that magnitude of change is going to look like so that you can um, have a more realistic understanding of what the implementation time and cost and risk is going to be from a from a change in a project management perspective as well. 
And then another comment here was in this thread from Ismail uh, Quite Fun, I believe is how you pronounce it. Q U E I Q U E, or I'm sorry, Q U T E I F A N. And again, I apologize if I'm butchering that name, but it's but it's Ismail Cutefon, uh, I believe it is. Cuton. Uh, um, would a new suit make a good operator? How about a shinier laptop, a sharper tool? So I think what he's suggesting there, sort of tongue tongue in cheek, is that um, the tool itself or just providing technology is not going to improve your processes. Uh, the vendors sell that false belief, but that's not what happens. You have to have a pretty clear understanding and vision of what you want your processes to be. And I, and I actually agree with, with that comment as well. I think there's some really good comments that uh, came from that thread. So I appreciate everyone who participated or who uh, provided some feedback on that, on that great question. And again, if you're not following me on LinkedIn, please do love to have you be part of the conversation offline, you know, outside of the podcast as well, just to be uh, having these sorts of debates and discussions um, online. So I'm excited for our next guest. We're going to shift gears and cut over to the interview we had a few weeks ago with uh, Dave Beldick earlier in season one of this podcast. We unpacked a case study from a client of ours that had hired us to come in and evaluate and assess how to get their implementation on track. They had failed in their first attempt or they were in the midst of a failure. They asked us to right-size the project, get it back on track, and really you know get, it, get some momentum behind uh, some things that had gone off the rails. And so Dave's going to talk about some of the lessons learned that we have from this client. And, and ideally, we want to, in that interview, share with you some lessons learned that you can bring forward if you're not already in your implementation to sort of get to some of the, uh, the heart of these issues earlier in a process or earlier in a transformation so that you don't have to clean up a mess later on like this client did. But having said that, it's, it's helpful to learn to see what mistakes this client made and how we, we came in to fix it to ultimately help you certainly fix those mistakes if you end up making that same mistake or if you already have made the same mistakes or better yet, if you haven't started your transformation, it'll help you avoid some of those mistakes along the way. So with all that being said, we're going to uh, cut over to Dave Beldick and the interview I, I had with him. Uh, Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So you and I share a common interest in benefits realization and benefits optimization. And, and uh, you know, I've known each other now for a few years and, and run in the same industry circles. And it's almost like uh kindred spirit or, or, you know, kind of a long lost brother or something when I hear you talk about some of this stuff, because, you know, there's times when you, you talk about the way transformation should be versus the way they actually are in reality. Most times, um, sometimes you feel like you're crazy when you start talking about this stuff. And then you come, and I kind of come across someone like you who, who shares a lot of the same uh, values and in, in sort of approach and philosophy to these sorts of transformations. And so what I wanted to do today is just ask you a bunch of questions around uh, benefits optimization in general, you know, how to get more out of your implementation and really how to, how to implement right, you know, and a lot of what we'll talk about, I think runs counter to what software vendors and system integrators might tell you, but yeah. this is what you and I both found to be uh, pretty, pretty effective, um, both in terms of doing it right from the start, but certainly if you're in the middle of a project and you're already starting to see some warning signs or you're concerned that things might be getting off track, we'll talk about some things you can do to remediate that as well. Um, throughout the discussion here today. So um, I guess to start, you know, if we just back up and before we start talking about how to optimize benefits and maybe get even more fundamental, you know, forget about optimizing benefits for a moment. And let's just talk about how to not fail. You know, how do, how do we go through yeah. these implementations in a way that isn't going to fail? You know, a lot of the research that you've pointed to that I've pointed to uh, from Gardner and other industry analysts, even our own research at third stage supports this, shows that most 
projects fail 50% or more. Some stats I've seen are as high as 80% of transformations fail. Why is that just at a high level? What are some of the reasons why those projects fail? Yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of things, of course, and, and but but one of them I know is near and dear to you, and, and one of the big ones is organizational change management. Uh, I think another big one is is getting the master data right. We all know ERP is a beast when it comes to data. You've got to have that right. And, and if you think about these two things, unlike a lot of the other technical stuff that happens during a project, these are things that actually the implementing organization largely needs to own. I mean, you know, a system integrator is going to help you a little bit with giving you guidance through some of the OCM stuff and, and you know, like doing business impact assessments and stakeholder analysis and stuff like that. But ultimately, it's you, the implementing organization that needs to get your organization to change. Right. And with the master data stuff, again, they're going to help you with some of that technical stuff, but they can't tell you what your materials are. They can't tell you, you know, your bill of materials. They might help you decide, do I need a single level or a multi-level? Okay, that's cool. But they can't tell you what the ratio of ingredients are. That You've got to do that. So so you, you find that the implementing organization has got two heavy lifts that they have to do. And I mean, typically they're not experts at that. So that's, that's to me, that's, that's a lot of the reasons why, it, why, they, why failures happen. Right. Yeah, those are two big ones that, that we often see, change management data. Um, what about, you know, if we, if we sort of dig in a little bit more into sort of the nuts and bolts and the moving parts that contribute to either success or failure, uh, one of those that I know you and I have talked about in the past is, is business process improvement, business process mm -hmm. mapping, value stream mapping, whatever you want to call it. Um, when should that process start? Because that, that is kind of a root cause for a lot of a lot of projects that struggle is they don't address business process and workflows well or effectively or at the right time. So when should that business process work start? Yeah, well, I'm a, I'm a big believer that that business process work should start very early in the game. I think, you know, there's a lot of things you've got to do in an ERP implementation that you really can't get into too much until you actually have a system defined and all that stuff and a lot of that detailed stuff. But there's a whole bunch of supporting processes, what I like to call the foundational support processes that, that you've got to put in place first. And uh, I mean, for, for example, if you're if you're going to be moving to an ERP system in your own legacy, ERP is a, you know, it's a, it's a real-time system. So if you're not doing real-time activities today, if you're not, you know, if you're in the habit of, of uh, um, doing something where, where your, your folks on the shop floor might record stuff on paper or, or even in another system and then they upload it, you know, a day later or a weekend, you know, if it, they work on a weekend and load it up on Monday, that's that's something you've got to overcome. You've got to try to get to where you're doing that real time, and that that doesn't just happen. You know that you've got to work through that. And and uh, I'm a big believer that the more of those things like that that you can get done before you start your implementation, the, the better it'll be. Uh, so so I'm a big believer to start that stuff early. Yeah, yeah, and I've heard you you talk about the uh, the analogy of you know if you need a, a taxi. And you, you call the taxi while you're still getting ready. Or the taxi shows up and you're not ready yet, and you're still packing your bags or getting the kids ready or whatever. Oh uh, yeah, it's running right. Yeah, I think I think that's that's one thing that you know. Uh, what what I've seen is a lot of folks, a lot of organizations, they want to they want to get started quickly. They want to go give me a system integrator, then I'll get started. And what you find out is is that there's a lot of things that you've got to figure out for yourself, like. 
you know, who, what, what are my, who owns what materials, who owns what data elements, who, who, who do I go to for certain decisions? How do I, you know, how do I even categorize these things to prioritize my work activities and stuff like that? And, and what you see happen is when you, if you wait until you get the system integrator to start any of that stuff, then when the system integrator finally comes in and, and you say, okay, now I, you know, I've got, I've got these, I'm looking at data and I see a, I see a customer and you've got four different addresses here. What's the right one? And then you're scrambling then to go figure that stuff out. And, or, you know, just any number of a thousand uh, uh, examples I could give there. Uh, what you find out is, you know, the system integrator, you know, they're very patient. They'll wait. I'll wait. Uh, you know, it's just take right. your time. It's all billable. It's all good for me. So you, you find yourself scrambling doing things that, you, you know, you should have done, you know, months ago. Uh, you, you knew this project was coming. You, you know you've got some things to clean up and, and you didn't take the time to do it. I, it's funny, I talk to people after, uh, you know, they're a year into an implementation and, and, and inevitably they all say, God, I wish I started this stuff early. If I had just, you know, because you got so much stuff to do and then you realize why am, I, why am I having to figure out some of these things now when I should have figured that out before. So I, I'm like, anything you can and, 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 and and should do before you, you can bring in the, the system integrator, I think you should go after because I think those are things that if you can if you get if you can get some of those things knocked out before you bring in the system integrator, then you'll be much more efficient in, in their use because they're, they're they're not they're not inexpensive resources. There, the meter does run pretty fast, so if you can knock those things out, you'll get uh, much more efficient use and and be more effective there. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm still waiting to meet that client that says, you know, the one mistake we made is we wish we wouldn't have started, you know, Workstream X as early as we did. We started it too soon. I've, I've yet to meet that client for anything. I mean, whether it's process improvement or data or change management, um, I would love to meet that client someday because I would be, I'd rather err on that side, you know. Exactly. Of, uh, It'd be nice knowledge. to see that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with yeah. you. I haven't met that client either. Yeah, someday, you know, we, we'll, we'll keep striving to that uh, <laughs> level of, of, of achievement there. Um, so when we look at the technology itself, though, when we look at um, cloud technology and other advancements, um, configuring and setting up a ERP system now is a lot easier than it was 10, 20, 30 years ago, as far as just the, the complexity and, and relative ease of, of setting up the technology. Why does this, well, let me, I won't, I won't answer the question for you. Let me ask you. <laughs> Does this mean that implementations are getting easier, faster, cheaper overall, given that the technology has advanced this much? But, you know, it's interesting because if you talk to the system integrator, you know, the answer you might hear is, of course, it's this is easy now. We can, it's so much easier to set up. And, and but as you know, that the actual standing up of the system is such a small part of the overall success factors for, for getting the, the implementation right that, uh, uh, it really, it, in fact, it almost works in the against you because what happens is because you can stand it up so much faster, there's this belief that we can make this thing happen faster. And what happens is, you know, that all that organizational change that has to take place, all that data cleansing that has to take place, now that time frame gets shrunk. And so now you've got much more pressure to get this done. And, you know, again, the system integrator said, I'm, I'm, take your time. I'm good. You know, I'm patient. They're tapping, you know, the meter's running. And you, and, and you really get a huge amount of pressure from both internal and external when that happens. 
So you see the expectation set at leadership. You're, you know, if you're an implementing organization, the CEO, here's how easy it is to set stuff up. And they're thinking, oh man, this used to be a two-year project. Now I can do it in, in, in a year or 16 months. And, and that mindset just starts the whole ball rolling. And uh, it, it's tough. I, I find it actually, I think it, the, 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 I, the notion that you can stand it up faster, um, but there's actually another one, one other thing I, I should have said, because, because of the cloud uh, structure, a lot of, the, a lot of the, the bells and whistles that used to be available, it's a little bit more vanilla, I, I would say. That's how I would put it, a little bit more vanilla. So you have less choices. So right. less choices, that tends to mean you're likely to have to adapt more. So you got more adaption in shorter time frame. It really, it, it gets tough. It's tough. Yeah, I, I mean that's a that's a great point. And, and if you think about technological advancements in general, in, in addition to being a little bit more straightforward and a little bit more vanilla in terms of how you set it up, given all the advancements in technology, think about things like artificial intelligence or mm-hmm. uh, blockchain or predictive analytics, whatever it may be. There's a there's a lot of advancements that have happened in, in technology um, in addition to the cloud. And what I would argue is that those advancements. And the tech, technological changes have actually increased the risk and increased the amount of time and effort it takes to implement. Not because the technology hasn't gotten better, but because now you're imposing more change on your organization, whether it's because of these vanilla workflows that now you're being forced to adapt to or and or because the technological advancements as a whole you know, for the, for the enterprise software has changed so much that it's gonna be a bigger change, a bigger leap for your organization to adapt to it. I totally agree, yes. But software vendors and system regulators don't want you to hear that. They don't want to tell you that because that that will they don't want to spook you because you're about to sign this big, you know, multi-million dollar contract potentially for software and services to go on top of that. So I think it's, you know, important to back up. And even if it's the right answer for you, you know, that solution and that system integrator you might be talking to, you really want to take that with a grain of salt, um, has been, you know, my finding. Just kind of make it right-sized for your organization. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I kind of almost like to change the dialogue out there in the industry because there seems to be this once once an organization is committed to a, to a project, they, they kind of focus on that go live. I want to get to that go live faster. Um, and I, I really want to change the dialogue. So they're more thinking about how do I get to world class ERP operation faster? And it's not the same thing. Because you can you can rush into a go live and have a train wreck and never get to world class. Or you can take the time, build the proper foundation, and and go live a little bit later, but ultimately get the world class faster. And and that's that's kind of where I get excited. Is is you know it's it's not about rushing to go live. It's about how do I make sure I'm successful. Number one, and how do I get the world class the fastest way? And I think yeah. it's by putting those foundational pieces in place first. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I I agree. Um, well, actually, continuing that thread, actually, that's a good segue into the next question I had for you. Um, I've heard you talk in some of your presentations that you've given about this topic, about how a lot of organizations think of Go Live and some of the activities within Go Live as, as sort of a one-time event, whether it's uh, the data cleansing. I'm going to do a one-time mm-hmm. event where I cleanse the data and I migrate it over, or the business process mapping. I'm going I'm to define it once, design the system, and then build the system on top of that. Um, same with inventory management. That that seems to be the conventional um, thinking. But what what are some of the flaws with that approach, or what are some of the nuances that you suggest is a better approach than that sort of one time mentality? Yeah. So I think, and if you take you know a good example is in the inventory space. You mentioned that one is uh, 
you know, people do sort of understand you have to have good clean inventory to operate successfully in an ERP system. And what you get is a lot of pressure from the system integrator to make sure your inventory is good. Um, but you know, they, you can kind of get talked into, I'm going to do a plant physical. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to look at every inventory record. I'm going to make sure it's perfect. The truth is, even if you could wave a magic wand and make the inventory perfect when you first went live, if you don't have in place the, the, the right foundational pieces, the right, you know, that you're doing, that you're doing cycle counting and that when you do cycle counting, then you, then you start to analyze and do root cause analysis for, for why inventory is getting out of whack and then go after those things and have, you know, have those early detection uh, processes in place to understand when you have problems. If you don't have that and you just do a, a, you know, a plant physical and go live, okay, great. Day of go live, you're in good shape. The day later, you're, you're not, not as good a shape. A week later, it gets worse. And if you, and if the, here's the worst part about that too, though, is if you don't have those, those uh, early detection things in place, you might go a month or two before you start to really see uh-oh, I'm in trouble. And, and uh, you know, because when you first load that inventory and you're promising stuff to customer, largely a lot of times you're, you're, you're filling out of inventory. And if the first snapshot of inventory is good, you have that false sense of security that everything's okay. But as soon as you start to, you know, to create new inventory and put it in place and you don't have these, these foundational support processes in place, then you start to, 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 you know, to get a little bit out of whack and then suddenly you start missing orders and, and then you start looking in to find out what's happened and, and you know, things have been, you know, you found some little thing that you should have detected day one or day two uh, has been going on for a month and, and now you got a, you got a, a mess you're dealing with. And, and that's the, that's the big thing is, is if you don't have some of these things in place early uh, and, and, and if you treat it like a one-off event, um, you know, you're just gonna, you're really gonna, gonna find that, that you got an unsustainable solution and, and you don't want that. You want to be able to, you want to have, you know, continuously monitor and stay on top of these things. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of one of my, uh, early projects in my career it was actually the first project that I was the lead consultant on, uh, back, you know, back in the early two thousands, it was for a, uh, a large utility company in the African region. And, so I got to go out, you know, fly to Africa and, and do this uh, analysis of an SAP implementation. They had just finished implementing SAP and then they had implemented um, a geospatial information system is what they call it in the utilities mm. industry. It's, it's basically a technology that tracks all of your assets in the field and all the maintenance that needs to happen to go along with it. And it just shows you how, how it all ties together. Um, so they implemented these two technologies and they hired us because they said that the implementation was a disaster technology doesn't work. We've got all these data corruption issues, inventory issues, things like that. And, you know, as we dug into the analysis, we found that actually the implementation itself wasn't the problem. You know, the technology is working. The problem is all your processes and the people that are touching the system are breaking stuff. You know, they're, they're in there, you know, they're not tracking uh, updates to the assets the way they should. They weren't tracking maintenance the way they should. Even just inventory adjustments or inventory movements within the company, they weren't tracking that the way they should have technology would, would allow them to do it. It was set up right, but it just wasn't being used. So, you know, to your point, it's almost like, uh, you know, it's almost like if you've got a big gash on your head and you just kind of slap a bandaid on it rather than trying to, you know, rinse out the gash and, you know, kind of get to the root cause of, you know, how do I avoid gashing my head in the first place? Um, you know, really getting back to that root cause, I think is a, a really important point. And that's 
why so many companies go through these transformations is to improve their operations, but yet they expect the technology to somehow just solve all their problems for them. Yeah, and I, and I actually like the example you used there because a lot of what you just described there had nothing to do with the ERP system per se. It was all that kind of behavioral stuff that I, you know, my, my philosophy is if you're gonna be, in, so if you're gonna to go to ERP, you've gotta be good in, in inventory. I gotta be really good in my processes. Demonstrate that first, figure that out, figure that stuff out. I mean, if you got to, I mean, I've even seen where, where an organization says, well, I'm going to, I'm going to do cycle counting after I go, go live. Cause I know I have to. And right. then they find out that the, that the layout of the warehouse really is not very conducive for that. So suddenly they're like, well, I can't really do what I thought I could do. You want to figure all that stuff out before you go live, not after you go live. I mean, and so, so, yeah. so I, you know, some of these foundational things get good at it first. I think that's, that's the key thing. And then you, well, that, that tells you, you know, you know what it takes to get there. Now, now it's a much smaller leap when you get to go live. If you're doing all of those changes, to go live, the, the things that are absolutely required, you know, system type stuff that has to be done. You know, there's, there's, there's definitely change that happens to go live. No question, but it doesn't have to be all those things, all those half of that stuff you can do before you go live. And that way, that way you kind of, kind of, like I said, get good at it. And then, and then all you have to do is figure out how I, how do I get good at it in the new system, as opposed to, you know, how do I learn how to do it for the first time in the new system? You know, it's, it's a big difference. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If, if you're a CFO or, or any sort of C-level executive in a company and your, your organization is about to go through that process that you're saying, or that you and I are both saying you shouldn't do, which is to force all those changes all at once at go live. Even if you're doing a phased rollout where you're doing it by location or by department, that's just too much risk. You don't need to take that. There's no reason to take that level of risk. And if you're an executive, you should be terrified of that, of yeah. that, um, idea and not enough executives recognize how you know how big of a deal that is or how big of a risk it is right yeah and, and even even as you say if it's a phase go live um you know for the people that are going live in phase one it's new to them and and for the people going live in phase two it's still new to them so unless you know unless you do some of that stuff before um you know and still there's a lot of you know you learn things go live one to go live two and whatnot but still for the people on the floor that are going to actually experience it they don't experience it until they experience it. And then, uh, you know, far better to experience as much of that as you can before go live than, than having to face it at go live all the time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. If anything, just, it, it helps morale. And at the very yeah. least it's going to help morale and reduce the chaos that, that goes along with, with it. Right. And, and I, I, I actually talk about the uh, kind of that go live leap is that if you, if you don't do any of that stuff beforehand, if you don't do that foundational stuff and you say, I'm going to do it all, as part of my go live, then you really haven't demonstrated capability. And so there's sort of, a, it's a big leap that takes place at go live. And, and if you can at least do some of those things and measure it, like if I, inventory is a perfect example, you know, if I'm, if I'm monitoring my inventory accuracy and I can see I'm moving the needle and I'm, you know, I get the 98%, 99%, um, I got something measurable, tangible I can do. Uh, and master data stuff. If I want to look at my bills of material, what's my bomb accuracy? Uh, I want to work on that because I, I want my data to be as representative of the physical reality as it possibly can be. So I measure these things and, you know, all that stuff are things you can work on uh, before you go live. And, and, and uh, uh, you know, that that's having something measurable like that is, is really good because it'll help you feel like, all right, I know I'm ready. 
I've done the things I, I, I knew I had a mess because I, I jumped into it and I figured out and I, now I figured out how to get good at it. I'm finally now ready to, to implement. Uh, if you can do it that way, it, it, it makes the, the leap and go live to be much smaller. And you got a lot more, as you said, the morale is up because you sort of know I'm ready now. You, you, you know what you, you know, you, you've worked on it. You know, you can handle it now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you hit on a couple of things here in the discussion that I want to come back to after a quick break. Uh, you, you mentioned user competency, and then we've been talking about system integrators and their role in a transformation. And so we come back from the break. I want to ask you a few questions around how to build more internal user competency to where you have that level of maturity that you should have by the time you go live, but most organizations don't have. And along those same lines, how you balance that with what the system integrator's role on the project is. And I think that's where a lot of companies struggle. So I want to ask you some more questions around that uh, right when we come back from our break here. Um, I'm here with Dave Belder from Third Stage Consulting. We're talking about transformation, benefits optimization, and uh, we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more from Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Okay, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here at Dave Beldick. You can find Transformation Ground Control every Wednesday uh, live on YouTube, 10 a.m. Eastern Time in the United States, 3 p.m. London or 11 p.m. Hong Kong. And you can also subscribe to us on audio-only podcast formats like Google, Spotify, uh, Pandora, Apple Music, uh, whatever the case may be. So Dave, before the break, we were talking about, uh, you, you mentioned this concept of, of user maturity. I'm going to come back to that, or user competency, I should say. I'm going to come back to that in a second. But before I ask that, you know, maybe as a, as a preface to that question, um, what are your thoughts around when to bring in systems integrator and i know that's a bit of a loaded question but you know what's the right timing what should we be thinking about in terms of how we engage with and partner with the system integrator tell tell me your high level thoughts around that yeah so so i think you know as you kind of look through getting ready for an erp implementation and you start thinking about the kind of things that you have to do to be to excel in there uh i always kind of I, I like to look at it as um you know, if when the system is a is a good representation of the physical world, life is good in an ERP system, and and so now you so you've got to figure out how to how do I do how do I make my how do I how do I achieve that? And, and it's not just about inventory. That's the obvious example where you're you know I can measure my inventory record accuracy, but you know we talked a little bit about um, how do I some of the master data stuff you know how do i make sure that, that my bombs are representative of what we actually do that my routes are representative of the actual rates we perform uh things like that um if you're going to do any kind of 
supply chain streamlining. Uh, I think you want to you want to do that. You want to do that before you get into an ERP project. You can be a mess trying to unravel that stuff. I've actually seen, I've I've been through implementations where um, the organization took a look at their materials and they said, well, you know, we don't we don't really have time to figure out where we, you know, what what materials are going to go to what plants. So let's go ahead extend all materials to all plants. That'll give us the most flexibility. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you know, because what you just did to the project team is you took what should have been this much work, made it this much work. And and when you think about what happens when you do something like that, and I know I've gone off off your, I've gone a little bit down a tangent, but let me finish the thought and I'll come back and answer your question. But when you think about what happens, it's fine. (laughs) When you do something like that, Let's say your, you know, your project was going to dedicate 10,000 man hours or whatever. Just pick a number: 10,000 man hours to, 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 uh, you know, to your your data cleansing activities. When you got a data cleansing activity this big and you're putting 10,000 on hours on, versus a data cleansing activity that's this big and you're putting 10,000 hours on it, just think about that. I mean, in in the big when you're putting when you extend all those materials everywhere, and I'm going to put so much effort, I'm going to get mediocre at best data, you know, it, it's going to be sloppy. It just, it just is. Whereas if I can, if I can really take the time to figure out where do I really want to run my, my supply chain, where do I really want my materials to be, I can, I can hone in and make that footprint as small as possible. Then that same hours that go into that, that just makes that the quality of that go up, up, up. So I'm always a big proponent of figure these things out first. You know, when you're in the middle of a project, you don't have time to figure all that stuff out. Figure that stuff out first. Do your mapping of your of your supply chains. Understand what materials should exist where. Uh, You know, there's a hundred examples of, but it's stuff like that. Just figure out all the things that you can do that only you can do, and and you don't need a system integrator to tell you how to run your supply chain. Right? You've got to figure that out. And I always say, make that data footprint as small as you can make it. Uh, and, and if you do that, then the, then the level of effort you put into it will make will make the quality of that go up, up, up. So, but it, but but it takes it takes time and effort. So so you you say when when you know when do I bring the system integrator in? It's after I've done those things, after I've done all of the things that I, that I, I can do um, to get ready for them. So I know I know when I bring the system integrator in. Now I'm going to make the most efficient use of their time. I'm not going to be spinning my wheels like like we said the taxi driver. I'm not going to be I'm not going to be cooking the kids a breakfast while the taxi driver is sitting in the driveway. I've done that stuff. I figured it out and now I'm ready to go. And and uh, so to me that's that's the key is figure out those things that you can and should do before um, before you bring them in and and then you'll be way ahead of the game. And that's something third stage can help with for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it you know it reminds me a little bit of the analogy of you know, a marathon runner who, and by the way, I'm not a marathon runner, so I'm, I'm <laughs> these credible people to be talking about this, but to, to go with that analogy, if you, uh, you know, start a marathon just in a full on sprint, you know, and then you've got 26 miles to go, but you haven't paced yourself. You're actually, you know, expending too much energy too early in the race that, you know, you risk not finishing the race or very least you're, you're, you're dying by the time you, you finish. And it's a lot like that. I think a, a lot of people have the mentality of, okay, we picked our technology, we picked our system integrator, and we know we want to get this done in a reasonable amount of time. So we better start tomorrow. We better sign the contract, get the system integrator here right away, 
And of course, the system integrator, to your point, is all over that. They, they love that idea because they can start yeah. building right away and they make money faster and mm -hmm. uh, they're winning. But, you know, I think you have to take you have to start slow and pace yourself. And we'll get in a second uh, to your your concept of, of user um, competency. Um, you want to make sure you have that user competency built up before you you bring in the system integrator. But um, but I think that that mentality, people feel like they're going faster because they're starting fast and they think that's going to lead to a faster outcome. But in reality, it's, I think what, it, what you're saying and what I agree with is that you're, you're actually, you're actually creating more difficulty. You're more likely to experience delays and you're more, you're more likely to have problems with the implementation if you take that approach. Yes, absolutely. I, I think it's, it's back to that. What I said, I, I'd like to change the dialogue about is I, I wish people would think more about how long it takes me to get the world-class ERP operation as opposed to how long to get to go live. Because as long as you're just looking at how fast I go to go live, like I said, I can make a train wreck happen fast. Um, right. But that's not, that's not good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So what so it sounds like, you know, you want to get ready and, and spend some time doing the, the things you need to do to get that foundation in place before you bring in the system integrator or certainly at the very least, certainly before you bring in the whole army of consultants, because they're, you know, right. the system integrators are notorious for bringing in the big army of people that are on site or in today's day and age, maybe remotely. And certainly, you know, you've got offshore consultants, a lot of times are getting brought in and it's really easy to lose control of that, you know, lose control of that meter running uh, if you don't have a handle on that. Right. Um, but when you, when you look at what the system integrator does um, versus what you would do as an implementing organization, um, how do you differentiate between the, the project focus of the system integrator and the operational focus that's required to make a, a project successful. And you've you've talked about this in some of your thought leadership, the difference between project focus, which is what an SI does, and then there's the operational focus, which is what actually uh, is what leads to success. Yeah. Uh, let's see, a good example there might be in the data space. I, I like, when I look at data, for example, now I kind of, I'm going to categorize it as like two two giant buckets. One is the set it, set it and forget it bucket. And the other one is the monitor and adjust bucket. Um, and, and by set it and forget it. So if you're talking about plant names, material names and descriptions and stuff, things that, you know, you set them up once and, and you're not going to change them. But then you look at things like, you know, like like my bills and material and, you know, the, the ratios of ingredients in there, they might, they, as my yields improve, they might need adjusting a little bit. As my rates improve, I need to change my routes a little bit. As I get better and better at supply chain execution, I might have to change my lead time a little bit. So, so operationally, you've got to have things in place to be able to monitor those kind of things and, and to be able to, to actually update them continuously. Uh, in a project, what, it, what, it, what the system integrator, they treat everything like the set it and forget it code because all they're worried about is what, what values do I need to have in place to go live? And you're left holding the bag after go live. It's like, what are you going to do a year from now? You know, if you don't have, if you haven't, first of all, if you haven't done that kind of analysis to begin with, you don't know how to do it. Two, you, you don't have necessarily the, the proper values in there to begin with. And then three, when it comes time to make a change, you know, you're, you're scrambling trying to figure out, well, how do I even figure out what my, my bomb accuracy is or how, you know, what, what adjustments I need to make to my rates, you know, how do I even do that? You know, if you haven't gone through that process. So, so it, it, it's, it's um, again, it's, it's that kind of thing where you got to think about, you know, some of these ongoing things that you're going to have to do at, at, you know, when you're living in a system that you don't, you know, go live is like, you know, for the system integrator, it's like, Tell me the value you want it 
hit go live and, and that's all I need to know. Yeah. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a great point. I mean, it, there's a big difference between building a system, which there's very well-defined inputs you need to be able to build a system versus building an operational model and an organizational model that supports whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. Those are two very different things. Yeah. Um, what about this whole concept of user competency and decision-making? Now, that's another thing you, you've pointed out in some of your thought leadership around the importance of both of those things, user competencies and decision-making. What is it and how does it apply to uh, the sort of transformation and how you approach your transformation strategy? Yeah, I think I think it's 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 like some of the stuff we talked about before about that early engagement, getting folks started early, uh, trying to you know if I've got if I've got to put in place um, you know many things, many processes, many support processes to be able to to support my ERP system. If I can do as many of those in advance as I can, now my users have less to worry about at go live, uh, so they have a better sense of what's coming. Um, they, they have a better sense of how easy it is to do certain things and, or not. And, and because of that, they can, they can make better decisions. Um, and, and I think that's the key thing is the earlier you have folks involved in the project, uh, just say the smarter they get, the more competent they get, the more clearer they understand, you know, and the, and, and the more they realize what it's going to take to be successful. And then you start to think about things like, you know, when I, I'm getting ready to do my testing now, now I'm going to do some very detailed testing. I'm going to do my day in the life. I understand now I'm starting to, I'm starting to envision how I'm going to do this in real life. And I, and I, I know it well enough now to see that, Hmm, I'm going to have a problem on third shift because they do something goofy that, you know, if we don't, they got some weird scenario that, that, uh, at plant so-and-so that, that if we don't, you know, check that out, I can, I can smell trouble. So you start to get people thinking about, about what, it, what it's going to take to be successful. And, and, and suddenly they start to, to gain in their confidence. And, and, um, and, and basically, I mean, it, it's the, the earlier you get started, the, the smarter you get faster and the better decisions you make. And, and, and the less you have to worry about at go live, if you take some of these other things and kind of get good at it before go live. So all of that yeah. thing, you know, that's, that's the big thing is start early because then, you know, you, like you said, nobody has ever complained about starting too early, right? Yeah, and, and it's, it's also what you're describing is a way to mitigate that dynamic where you lose control of the project. You know, a lot of so many organizations that call us to come help remediate a failed project found that you know they just they just sort of lost control somewhere along the way they brought in the system integrator they outsourced everything to them system integrator isn't as transparent as they could be with why we have you know 10 or 50 or 100 people on this project what are those people doing do we really need them now um, and you have to keep in mind there's an economic incentive there that's not aligned with yours you know your your incentive is to build that competency in-house or should be to build that in, that competency in-house to to optimize the spend on the implementation and to optimize the way the business runs in the future. And those are, those two things are in, in conflict oftentimes. So it's everything you're saying is a way to really, it's a way to reduce cost. It's a way to reduce risk. It's a way to increase benefits, uh, especially long-term. And it's also a way to increase ownership of the project so that you can get rid of the consultants faster. Um, and, you know, one of our goals at third stage is to get, to work ourselves out of a job as fast as we can, because the faster we do that, um, you know, the, the, better job we've done and the more happy, you know, the happier the client's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. No. And you make a good point too. The, the, 
if you get the the more the, the higher competency you have with the with the folks that are actually in the middle of you know the implementing organization then you know when you get toward the end of that engagement you kind of pick the brains of the, of the system integrators uh in a little better better place you're not you're not you're not scrambling with with uh uh, the kindergarten stuff. You've moved on to calculus now. Now you're really dealing. You're really going after some of the some of the stuff because they're they're. I mean, I, I I'll be honest. I've worked with a lot of system integrators, and there's a lot of bright folks out there for sure. Oh, yeah. And and if you can get if you can make the most of that, um, that knowledge transfer at the end there is really important. And if you're scrambling trying to figure out, you know, how to do the you know the the basics of just pushing the buttons, and that's where your level of thought is at the end of your of your go live period, you're going to have to do a lot of learning on your own. But if you if you get you know pretty good and competent now, and you start thinking about, you know, in a year from now, I might want to do this, I might want to do that. What do you think? If you can start having those kind of conversations before the system integrator even leaves, now suddenly, you know, it's a whole different ballgame. You're you're really, you know, the level of thought and the level of of you know how quickly you get to world class it's a game changer. So, so get started early and, and uh, make the most of the system integrated while you got them there. Yeah, absolutely. And focus less on uh, just trying not to screw things up too badly and focus right. more on how do we, how do we get real value out of this? You're spending a ton of money and time and resources on this project. You might as well get the value out of it. Um, exactly. Which speaking of that, you talk about in some of your other um, thought leadership that, that we've reviewed with you, um, you talk about uh, the dynamic of spending so much time stabilizing go live that you never really finished the go live the way you envisioned it. <laughs> what do you mean by that, or, or maybe explain that phenomenon to us a little bit? Yeah, well, I think I think everybody who, who goes into an ERP system they do have some lofty expectations of what what, what life is going to be like on the other end of that. And uh, and if you have you know if you've done a lot of laid the foundation right to begin with and and. Uh, taking good advantage of, of the, the brain power that exists within your system integrator and you kind of get to that that the other side in a pretty good good place and you start you know going toward that world class thing. Uh, that's one thing. That's one end of the spectrum. But if you get if you find that you didn't put the you know the foundational pieces in and you're struggling after go live and and all you want to do is just I just want things to be, you know, I just want to get through the day um, with, you know, I, I I've lost sight of that end goal. I'm no longer thinking about world class. I just want to. I just want to not go home with a headache every day, you know. And when you get to that, it's almost a defeatist type attitude. It's not. It's not what you would call a failure, um, but it's certainly not what you would call a, a success. You know, it's one of those. All I did was I migrated to a new system, and I I, I stubbed my toe along the way, and I, I survived. But I can't say much more than that. Um, and, and people get disheartened when, when you get something like that, when you go through a rough, a rough go live, it, it's hard to keep the momentum up, hard to keep that vision out there to trying to climb the world class. You know, you've got, if you don't have that, those foundational pieces in place, you know, it's pay me now, pay me later kind of thing. You know, you're, you're going to have to go do some of that stuff and, and clean it up. But, um, yeah. until you do, you're going to, you're going to be, you're going to be struggling and, and you're going to, you know, you won't be able to really. I mean, world class is is kind of out of the picture for you at that point until you until you until you do some of those things. So a lot of what you're talking about here is focused on how to not only optimize post implementation results, but also how to make your implementation itself more successful and doing it with less risk and less time, less resources, and, and higher success rates. 
But what about an organization or a project team that's already gone through the process or they're, they're in the middle of their transformation, they've already made a lot of the mistakes that you just advised not to make. You know, if I'm halfway through or I'm about to go live or I've partially gone live and I'm, I'm trying to right size things or optimize my implementation, what are some of the things you'd recommend to get started to sort of head the direction that you're, you've suggested so far? Yeah, so if you've already gone live and you're and you're struggling a little bit, then it, it's not too late. You know, we can still take a look at, at some of these foundational pieces and kind of see what what is in place and what is not in place. And and um, it, it's still you know it, it's still okay to work on those things. It's harder when you're in the middle of a project and you've got the date of a go live hanging over your head. Um, there, it's, it's you know, and I've been through enough of those. I, I understand the pressure of. of you know, hitting your timelines and and now you got you got this guy Eric coming in saying, well, wait a second, are you ready? You know, and all that stuff. Um, and so it's a balancing act. You can't, you, you, you know, are you ready? Are you, well, are you ready to go live? Well, you're never ready to have a failure, <laughs> so you do want to make sure that you uh, uh, that you're not going to fail. And I think what I what I tell folks is one of the things you can look at the most uh, that's the most telling indicator is is your your inventory. Uh, you know, if you have excellent inventory accuracy, it's not just about inventory per se. You have to do a lot of things right to have good inventory accuracy. Uh, and, and if you don't even know, that's very telling in and of itself. Um, but if you go and do some quick cycle counts and you find out, oh, I got, I got trouble, that, that's kind of, a, it's kind of a red flag. So, yeah. uh, you know, it, it, so if you just want to kind of get that, that one, you know, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't have time to take a three-month break and all that stuff. I just want to. I just want to get a get a sense of where I'm at. You know, there's all that project stuff. But if you just want to look at operationally where I'm at, if you if you can prove to yourself that you have excellent inventory, you, you have to be doing some things pretty right. And, yeah. And and it, and if you're looking at it from you know if I got multiple rollouts or multiple sites, look at it at every site, and you might find out if I got like three sites going live here. You might find that that sites one and two are pretty darn good in inventory, but site three they got a problem. You might have to make the call to pull site three out of that go live. Uh, you know, it's stuff like that you can do on the fly. Um, but I, I admit it's a lot harder to do this kind of thing in the middle of a project. It's far better to do it before. Um, yeah. Number one, first prize would be do it before. Number two, do it after. And number three is if you're right in the middle and you're a little bit nervous about, you can do a little bit of that and, and, and kind of test the orders and see where you are. And then you might have to cause a pause if you, if you see, you know, a lot of things that really make you scared. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Good points. I, you know, we find that with a lot of our clients that are midstream and, you know, a lot of clients hire us at that suboptimal point, but you're still better off making an adjustment, even if it's late and, and, you know, you have to think about the cost and risk of potential disruption to the project itself right in the middle versus the potential cost and risk of disruption to your entire operations. And usually if you really think that through, you're going to find that it's a lot less risky and costly to fix something midstream, even if it means pushing out your go live or uh, incrementally adding to the, to the cost of the implementation. Uh, but I think, you know, beyond that, or just taking that a step further, so many organizations need to think outside the box of, you know, how do I take two steps forward? I might have to take a step back to get those two steps forward. So rather than continuing to spin my wheels or, you know, taking a, a project down this path that's likely to lead to failure and operational disruption, you know, how can I take a step back to be able to take two steps forwards? And usually there's pretty targeted prescriptive ways that you can have some real high value impacts on your on your project without 
materially disrupting the flow of the project or the timeline or the budget or whatever the case may be. So I think right. it's just a, a sort of a mindset shift if you've said, as you've said as well. Yeah. So, well, well, good. Well, thanks a lot for, for being on the show here today, today, Dave, this was a good conversation and certainly, uh, you know, for those listening that would like to maybe just get a quick, quick sanity check or gut check on their either planned transformation, if you're about to start one, or if you're in the middle of one and you're trying to figure out how do I, how do I get things back on track? Um, certainly reach out, you know, we've got our contact information below and at the end of the podcast uh, for, for those of you that want to reach out, even if, even if you just want to have an informal brainstorming session around what you're thinking or what your challenges are, we can certainly give you some, some even informal guidance on that and what we've seen with some of our clients. So feel free to reach out and uh, Dave and I and others on our team would be happy to chat with you about that. So thank you again for, for being on the show here today, Dave, really, really good to have you again. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find us on YouTube, Pandora, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple Music, or, or Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, etc., um, also encourage you to share this podcast with a friend or colleague, anyone who you think might be help, helpful or, or that might benefit from this show. I'd love to uh, get this out to as many people as possible. So we are going to bring on our third uh, of our interviews we're going to feature here today in our best of episode. This interview was with Sarah Stanley Smith from our UK office and Tammy Foshi from our US office. And this is a really interesting conversation. I really enjoyed it, not only because it's about change management and just general change management best practices, but because you have sort of this uh, cross-cultural, cross-geographic sort of view of organizational change. And not that change management necessarily differs, whether you're in North America or Europe or South America or Asia Pacific or wherever you are, but it's just interesting to hear the different perspectives from two very different uh, people in, in different parts of the world and, and working on different projects for, for third stage. And... Uh, Good discussion here, just general best practices around organizational change management. So I'm excited to have uh, Tammy and Sarah on this episode again. Uh, Tammy and Sarah, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having us. Pleasure. Sure. So I guess to start, and uh, maybe I'll start with you, Tammy, on this first question and then have Sarah build on this. But I guess the first question for you is, what? how, how would you define change management? It can mean a lot of different things to different people. It's a term that's often overused, misused. Um, technical integrators often have their own definition of what they think change management is. Maybe it's training, communication, or uh, other things. But 
What maybe just if we back up a little bit and just talk about change management in general, how would you define it? Sure. Um, you know, I think I would define change management as applying a, a structured approach or methodology to moving people through change, you know, whether that's at the individual, the team, or the organizational level. So I I like to compare it to the way that you know project management runs a project. It's a purposeful structured approach, and that's what change management is to me. Yeah, makes total sense. How about you, Sarah? What are your thoughts? Yeah, so I, I completely agree. Um, I, I, I likewise think it's kind of the, the organized transition to, to new ways of working. Um, to kind of build on that, I, I kind of like to view it in terms of sort of four key areas. So it's that transition phase um, to a new way of working across uh, processes, technology, structure and skills. Um, but then kind of underpinning or overpinning all of that is kind of the focus on people specifically. So how do people move through that transition? Um, and it's kind of uh, sort of helping uh, smooth that transition and, and make it as sort of easy as possible for people to um, adopt new ways of working. Right. Now, if uh, if we look at any sort of digital transformation or business transformation, uh, Obviously, there's a there's a big impact to people, but what do you think makes change management so important? You know, when you compare it to call it the technical aspects of a transformation or the business process aspects or any other aspect. Why, why is the change management piece so important? Maybe what are your thoughts, Sarah? Uh, well, so for me, I think that um, without people, you don't have a project, right? So um, you can have, you know, the, the world's leading technology, sort of all shiny, singing, dancing, all that kind of thing. But if you don't have the people there who are able to use the technology um, eff effectively and efficiently, there's no point in having it, right? You might well as just, you know, not, not bothered. So I think uh, that's where change management really comes into its own, because we're, we're talking about people and, and helping people through that process um, and getting them to embed their new ways of working in order to support the technology that's coming in. So I kind of think without that change management piece, yes, you've got great technology, but you're not able to use it and sort of see the benefits um, of it. Yeah, it becomes shelfware or, or uh, technology that, that's there, but it's not being used. You're not getting the value. Out yeah, of it. exactly. Yeah. How about you, Tammy? What are your thoughts on that? To piggyback on what Sarah said, you know, I think if you sort of go through this process to configure and build, you know, the the leading, you know, best class technology, but you don't do the change management piece, you know, you're going to have impacts to productivity. But on top of that, you're also going to have the frustration of the users who haven't been prepared, aren't ready to use it, don't understand, you know, the direction that the business is moving in. And so any potential ROI or benefits you expected to achieve have, have literally gone out the window because you forgot the most important part, which is, you know, preparing the people that will be using the technology. The technology is just a tool at the end of the day. Hmm. Yeah. In hearing you guys talk, it, it almost, I mean, it's, and I'm trying to step back and not be biased because I, you know, I started my career as a change management consultant as well. And, you know, I, I certainly see the value and, and believe it's critical to any project. But even if I step back and just listen to your responses, it seems like a no-brainer, even if I didn't have that bias. So why do you think it's why do you think so many companies have trouble seeing the value in change management? Or why why don't more people recognize how important change management is? Do you guys have a, a thought on that? 
Yeah, I, I guess for me, there's a couple of things there. I think sort of number one, it, it's kind of fairly new in terms of a discipline um, compared to some, you know, some of the other disciplines that we deal with. So I think there's still quite a lot of learning that uh, people who aren't kind of deeply involved in change management um, perhaps need to go through. Um, and I also think obviously with any kind of large scale project, you know, there's always tight budgets and there's time constraints. And I often think that, that change management seen by people who don't understand it as um, sort of a nice to have, or if we have time, let's Let's do it if we have some money left over let's try and do it rather than saying actually this is kind of a critical kind of linchpin to your program so i think there's kind of a bit of a lack of um education and awareness um through people who perhaps don't understand it in as much detail because they're not as involved yeah that's a good point i'd never thought about the the maturity or the the fact that it's a relatively new uh discipline and it hasn't been around as long as some of the other work streams that we commonly work with so that's a, that's a really good point what are your thoughts tammy I think the other challenge is that it takes so long to actually see the benefits of a change management program, right? You layer this on top of an initiative and you basically have to get to the point where the change becomes business as usual and then you monitor the success of that change for you know a certain period of time, maybe in your hyper care state. And it's not until then that you're sort of realizing the value of what you did. So I think I think the delay between, you know, the level of effort that you have to put into it to implement it, the delay of how long it takes to actually see the value of the level of effort and the investment that you put forth. Because of that delay, I think it's sometimes hard to convince people who want some of that instant gratification. Yeah, and it it's a good point. I, it also seems like during these sorts of transformations, if, if you know, if I'm implementing new technology, I can see and touch and feel the technology. I know if it's working or not. It's pretty black and white for the most part. Either it works or it doesn't. And that's one piece. And then on the operational side, I can look at a process flow and I kind of know I can see where there could be a problem with that process flow. But the change management stuff, I can't see it. I can't touch it. I can't feel it. And by the time I do feel it, it's usually at go live, post go live. And it seems like that's another part of it is how do you, you know, and I don't know if you have a good answer for this or not, but you know, how do you get someone to feel the pain sooner of, of not having good change management? Because it takes, to your point, Tammy, it takes so long for people to realize the value. And on the flip side, it takes so long to feel the pain of not having addressed change management. I guess I uh, could kind of answer that a, a little bit. Um, I, I always like to use examples of where projects have failed, <laughs> where they haven't had the change management is kind of that example. Because um, if you can kind of relate it to a similar project, maybe that you've um, you've heard about or, or a colleague's been involved in, for example, and you can explain, uh, you know, this is what happened. And if we had had change management up front and we had done X, Y and Z, we could have mitigated that before it had, um, you know, sort of uh, derailed the uh, the project, as it were. So I think it's really good to kind of use some real life examples um, in in that scenario and just kind of try and really sell the benefits to people um, early on. So it's kind of uh, you know people are bought into to the whole change management work stream piece. Yeah, that's a good point. You have to kind of illustrate the what ifs. You know, what if we don't do change management? What does that look like? And what have other companies experienced that haven't? invested in change management. What are your thoughts, Tammy? Yep. I think another way to to look at it is also to really look at the change and and kind of break it down how much of the success of this change is dependent on people behaving differently or in new ways. And when you can look at it that way, 
and you can sort of explain the, the continuum that people go through when they're experiencing a change, I think you can bring some of that, you know, to the surface so people can really start aligning, you know, the success of this project not only depends on appropriately configured technology, but it also depends on, you know, individuals who are knowledgeable and ready and willing to work, you know, in new ways in the future state. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you guys ever see the dynamic or the, with our, with our clients, do you ever see uh, situations where client says, Hey, yeah, I get it that other organizations have struggled with change management, but our people are different. They're on board with this change. They're excited for it. They understand that the old way isn't going to get us to the future. And therefore, I think we're worrying about a whole lot about nothing because change management is not going to be a big deal for us. Do you ever run into that? Yeah, I, I've seen that a couple of times, actually. Um, and I think it's sometimes it's a kind of uh, people almost reassuring themselves that, yeah, you know, it's fine. We've got this. Our people are great. And it's quite a dangerous assumption to make because until you've really undercovered, uh, you know, the culture and the nuances within a business and you've actually gone and speak like, you know, spoken to um, the end users, you don't actually understand how they're feeling and their understanding of change management. Um, and I think even in the best will of the you know will in the world in the world, if everybody's really um, up for the change and they're really excited and they're really on board and there's none of that resistance um, initially, when you actually get into the nitty gritty and you actually start asking people to do stuff, you know that's outside of their um, business as usual as usual jobs or their roles, and you're actually asking for people's time and commitment as part of the uh, the program, uh, the change resistance then tend to you know tends to arise and it starts to appear and cracks start to show and that's when you can really start to um, see projects actually derailing because of it so I think sometimes um, people kind of lure themselves into a false sense of security that yeah it's, it's great because our people are great but until you've done that discovery piece and you've actually done that investigation you can't be sure that that's the case um, so yeah I found that a, a couple of times that it, it's quite scary to watch really <laughs> mm. yeah in, in no amount of educating or or case studies sometimes will, will help those, those situations or the, those instances where they, they have that false sense of security. How about you, Tammy? Have you seen something similar in your career? Absolutely. Um, I actually think this is probably one of the biggest uh, pitfalls when it comes to organizations and their approach to organizational change is this um, over-assumption that they know how their stakeholders feel and basically applying a generalized idea of how supportive, you know, the stakeholders will be. And I think every circumstance that I've been in where an organization tells me, you know, oh, everyone, we've had the same ERP system for 20 years. Everybody's ready for a new UI. Everybody loves change. Everyone's excited. You know, you get into it and that, that quote unquote, everyone is a subset of 10 or 12 people that this person works directly with. And when you really look at the organization as a whole, that's when you really start to basically peel the layers of the onion back and you do start to see some of that resistance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, kind of drawing out that potential resistance to change early on before it's felt or before the client necessarily sees it, just being able to anticipate that can be can be very powerful. Um, so what do you see as some of the, the biggest pitfalls when embarking on a, a change management program or when helping our clients through change management programs? Uh, why don't we start with you, Tammy? Definitely the lack of an understanding of the role of sponsorship and modeling behaviors. Um, 
you know, I think a lot of organizations think sponsorship is I'm going to sign my name to some emails and I'm going to host a town hall. But the, the more important thing to me from my experience when it comes to sponsorship is truly modeling those change behaviors, right? So I was in, in technology implementation where this, the CEO was actually one of the sponsors and we hosted a town hall event with actually about 400 people. This was pre-COVID. So everybody was in this huge auditorium and he got up there and he was showing how he would log his own expense report, log his own time. And to me, that went, you know, leaps and bounds for getting the rest of the organization on board, especially because those tasks were traditionally sort of um, passed on to admin assistants. And now there was this desire to, to sort of move to a, a culture of ownership of your own responsibilities. And him getting up there and, and sponsoring the change and modeling those behaviors, I think, went really, really far. And I think that's something that is a huge pitfall because a lot of executives are very busy and they'll sign their name to the sponsorship role without really understanding what it means to be active, visible, and vocal. Yeah, that's a good, good point. How about you, Sarah? What are your thoughts? Yeah, so I guess it's kind of linked really, but um, I think for me, one of the, the sort of key challenges is often, especially when you go into big organizations, there's kind of this um, misalignment of goals um, and, and vision. So you often get quite a lot of senior leaders within a company who all want to change, but they all want to change slightly differently. So you end up with sort of 10 senior people all kind of pushing and driving in slightly different directions. And then you kind of have this sort of level of middle managers who are trying to please their seniors, but kind of being pushed and pulled in different directions. And you end up going around in a big circle and nothing gets achieved and you get very frustrated people. Um, so I think it's it's super important that, you know, everybody is kind of aligned and agreed on the goals and the vision really early on. And we all know where we're driving to um, because, yeah, it's it's quite comical, really. But it just goes round and round and round and people get more frustrated and more fatigued and um, it just doesn't work. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's yeah, good. Good point. And it's it's, uh, you know, a lot of it comes back to leading by example and starting at the top. I mean, I think ultimately you need the people at the top to drive and support the change in order for it to stick and for other people to follow. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think actually then on the flip side, you know, obviously we're talking top down. If, if you think about the bottom up level, um, I think sometimes we fail to answer, you know, what's in it for me? That, that, that question that people, you know, who are right on sort of the coal face, as it were, those end users who are actually going through the system changes and actually changing how they work. I think if the program fails to say, OK, so why is this important for that imper that person? What you know, they kind of sat there thinking, why should I bother? You're asking me to do all this stuff and attend all these workshops and give you all this information. But what am I getting out of it? You know, so I think it's really important to to make sure you kind of cover that off with um, especially sort of groups of people that maybe kind of get forgotten until right at the last minute, by which point it's too late anyway. <laughs> right. That's a, that's a good point. I was just going to say, uh, Eric, to Sarah's point, you know, something that I've actually recently seen in, in the organizational change uh, sort of network of thought leadership is this concept of, you know, once you've established the what's in it for me, making sure that you also have established the what's in it for us. Um, because sometimes there are changes that don't necessarily have a direct benefit on an individual, but they're going to have a direct benefit on a team or the organization as a whole. And you have to be able to sort of paint that bigger picture because there's a lot of 
sort of identity built up with the employee within the organization. So I think, you know, what's in it for me has a long history in change management. And I think what's in it for us is sort of up and coming as it's, it's little sister or big brother, however you want to look at it. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Well, I have a few more questions for you that, that relate to more of the, call it the tactical side of, of change management and, and how, how you've actually executed some of these change programs in the past and how one might get started on the change program and a, and a number of other questions. But first, we're going to take a quick break and we'll uh, be back with Tammy and Sarah from the third stage team talking about organizational change management. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Uh, my name is Eric Kimberlin. We'll be right back. aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Sarah and Tammy from Third Stage Consulting. We're talking about organizational change management. And before the break, we were talking a bit about some of the different work streams or activities that happen on a change management uh, project typically. But what about the team itself and how a change team should be structured? What are, what are some of the best practices you guys have seen in, in those cases? Why don't we start with you, Sarah? Um, so generally, yeah, sure. So generally, um, the clients and the projects that I've been involved in, especially if they're big companies, you know, and they've got sort of matrix uh, organizations and it's global. Um, in the past, I've seen you, you tend to have a change lead or a change director. So somebody who's accountable for the whole work stream. And uh, in my experience, they tend to work side by side with the program director. So you've got that program focus and the change focus at that senior level. Um, then sort of sat underneath that, uh, I tend to find that you have a number of business change managers who are doing the sort of core business change activity. And then if the program's got the luxury of having enough resource, you tend to have, uh, you know, communications managers and training managers sat alongside them because, um, in my experience at least, training and communications obviously are part of change, but they're specialised disciplines in their own right. So it's always good if you can have those managers in those positions that work alongside the change manager. Um, and then obviously those resources are allocated out to different projects within the within the program. Um, and you tend to work alongside your business analysts and solution architects and your project managers. So you have sort of separate project teams within that program structure. And that's, that tends to be what I've seen work and it tends to work quite well. Right. How about you, Tammy? Have you seen anything different or any other ways that you've seen it work beyond what, what Sarah mentioned? I think she described a great structure. The only thing I would add is, you know, maybe the two ancillary sort of teams, which is the sponsorship of the project and um, sort of that change champion network that you would engage. So I agree with you, uh, Sarah and Tammy, that structure you just described, we've seen work really well at, at a lot of clients. In fact, most clients it's worked well. 
we've had some clients though that have taken more of a in-house approach to change management or, or they've wanted to integrate change management more into the operations and you know embedding it within what the project team might do or what the operational leads might do have you seen that work in the past or what are some of the pros and cons of, of, an, of an approach like that yeah i mean i think it's you go tell me Thanks, Sarah. I was just gonna, I think it's a great approach to really want to embed that, you know, change management capability within the organization. And I think it can be successful on smaller projects, but when you have larger sort of transformational type projects with far reaching impacts, I think you really need the expertise of a, of a well-built capability and a mature capability that most organizations haven't reached since it's, you know, relatively new to want to embed that capability in the organization. Right. I, I completely agree. I, I think there are pros and cons to the approach. Um, where I've seen it not work so well is if, say, like you, you say, Tammy, you've got quite a big program or project you need to deliver and the change management is divvied up between your sort of business as usual type people. They often have their day job to do as well as their project role. And often, obviously, you know, you get conflicting priorities and people say, actually, I'm really sorry, I just don't have time to do the change management. Um, and that's a real sort of hiccup that I've seen happen in the past. And it just becomes a nice to have and it gets forgotten about. Yeah, it becomes easy to, to just uh, assume that I, if I have to pick something to drop, I'm not going to drop the technology or the functional piece of it. I'm going to make sure that works. And I'm probably just going to drop change management. And it seems like a big part of this because you don't see or feel the impact of that right away, but you do see or feel the impact of not configuring a software solution or not defining a business process. You, you can see and touch that right away, but the change management stuff percolates when you were neglected and then it blows up at some point later on. Um, so that's a, that's a good point. When it's time uh, to use the system. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. When you go live and you post go live, that's when you really feel the pain of change management. And that's a big problem, I think, with just selling change management to, to a team or to, emphasizing the importance to an executive team is, you know, it's, it's, it's just hard to feel that that pain early enough in the process. Yeah, I always use the analogy of life insurance. It's definitely like life insurance for your project. And, you know, that's something that we purchase, we invest in, you know, to make sure that the people are taken care of when we are no longer here. And it's the same thing with change management. We have to invest and take care of the people to make sure when you go live, all the investment that you've made in that system or whatever that change is, is actually going to be able to be realized. Right, right. Now, what about uh, some of the change management challenges you guys have seen in your careers? Do, do you have a, a certain uh, a case study or a client or a project or maybe a, a particular example or situation that you feel was one, either the biggest or one of the biggest change management challenges you've you faced in your career? Why don't we start with you, Tammy? Um, well, I would actually say uh, on a project during COVID uh, that was you know, going really well, great change management approach and strategy. And of course the project sort of went on pause and when the project picked back up, the executive team was really trying to sort of balance out uh, mess message saturation and of course, you know, the, the COVID messaging took priority. And so this idea of preparedness and readiness for the organization for everything that we were working on took a back seat. And, you know, we really sort of um, turned the corner with that, with some focused interviews and some uh, readiness assessments to really say, you know, people are getting this information from the news, from their healthcare providers, from their families and from work. And, knowing that the organization is continuing with the project and continuing 
to communicate and prepare them actually gave them a source of comfort um, that was unexpected. So it was extremely challenging to convince, you know, the leadership team of that. But I think that's where having the data can match up with sort of what some people view as the softness of change management to, uh, to change minds. Yeah, absolutely. How about you, Sarah? What, what's, what's an example or of a situation that was particularly tough from a change perspective, either a current a situation or a client that you worked with? Sure, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I tend to think all change um, programs are, are challenging, but there's one particular one that kind of sticks out for me. Um, we were working uh, as part of a sort of digital transformation team, um, team of contractors as a global car manufacturer. And there were two sort of key challenges with this particular client. The first one that the organizational structure was highly devolved. So you essentially had loads of pockets of people, almost I kind of describe it as sort of 10 or 12 companies under this, you know, company banner. They were all operating on their own systems, using their own processes. They weren't talking to each other and it was a complete mess, to be honest. Um, so that was the key sort of first challenge that we had. And the second one was um, sort of business as usual continuity. So essentially, if we broke any piece of that puzzle, the cars would stop being uh, produced, stop coming off the line. And uh, the senior guys uh, as part of that company were saying, well, we can actually translate that to how many millions of pounds per hour we're losing, you know, and that's that's the knock on effect. So hugely challenging, hugely scary. Um, but the way we got around that was, well, firstly, we had a, a really strong change lead who kind of had a grip on what actually needed to be done and how we were going to do it. So we had a good upfront, sort of robust strategy in place. And the second bit was we had a really lengthy discovery phase. So we kind of sold it that, you know, obviously we can't break anything. And in order to not break anything, we have to understand everything first. So it was a quite a hard sell because obviously discovery costs money, but essentially it was right. Okay. We need to work out exactly what we're dealing with here, what systems, what processes, what people, et cetera. Um, that's kind of how we got around it, but it was huge. Absolutely huge. <laughs> yeah. Those are both interesting examples, sort of different examples, but but a good reflection of the diverse challenges that, that come up during a, a, a change initiative, especially in a, in a COVID environment too. You get some good points there, Tammy, about how to manage that soft side of change in a you know, more digital remote environment that a lot of us are operating in. Uh, how have you seen uh, you know, change management stay in sync? Or let me back up and rephrase the question. How, how do you suggest that companies keep their change initiative in sync with some of the operational improvements and the, uh, you know, the technical work streams and all the different pieces of transformation that happen. How, what are some high-level tips you would provide to a team uh, to help them stay keep their change management activities in sync? Why don't we start with you, Sarah? Um, so something I've seen that works quite well is having a dedicated change management board almost so you know you have your key players from each of those areas that you describe and they're all sat on a specific change management board so i'm talking something that's separate from your program board separate from your steering committee separate from your high level exec board so it's a dedicated forum where we talk about all the change management going on and we incorporate all of those different pieces and take it into consideration when we do anything um, but you really do have to involve all those key, key stakeholders because for the best, you know, best will in the world, you don't know what's going on unless you actually ask people. Right. Yeah. How about you, Tammy? Anything you'd add to that? 
Yeah, I mean, the similar structure, um, something that I've seen work really well is the concept of a community of practice, you know, with the change team and representation from generally the strategy or transformation side of the business. Um, and I, I think a real key point here is actually making sure you're including the functional areas that are enabling the business to generate their revenue, right? So that's IT, HR, which are traditionally seen as, you know, cost centers, but, but truthfully in today's world, they're, they've been transitioning for a while and, and I think they continue to evolve at a pretty rapid pace to be, to be more of seats at the table because they really are enabling the business. Um, so really, you know, I think a, a previous customer, they generated this community of practice and they met every two weeks actually, um, just to make sure nothing slipped by them and they were they were very proactive and prepared. Mm. Yeah, that's that's good, good feedback and good advice. And, and speaking of advice, you know, if we back up even more and just talk about how to get started, you know, if, if I'm a executive or project team member that's on a transformation or planning for a transformation, what do we, what's the best way to get started in the process? What do you think, Tammy? To get started in the process, you know, obviously once you have identified the, the need for change and understand and, and appreciate that, I think alignment and setting expectations for me is the most important. Um, you know, to Sarah's point about her example earlier about a challenging change, you know, every project that I'm on, the executive team, you know, has, has a demand of limit impacts to our productivity. And I always meet that with, okay, well, let's set some realistic expectations and make sure that we're all aligned on, you know, the activities that we can do, the timeline is realistic, access to the people, the team, the leadership and the decision makers are realistic. And I think if you can start with that and gain agreement on all of those things, then you're, you're really setting yourself up for success. Yeah. Yeah. You had, a, you had several really good points there that we could, we could further unpack maybe in a, on a future conversation. Um, what about you, Sarah? What, anything you'd add to that as far as how do I get started? What do I do to just really start to launch my, my change initiative within my transformation? Yeah, so I think I um, completely agree with what Tammy says. And, and again, uh, reiterating that understanding the challenge that you have. Um, once you have that understanding, I think it's really important that you fully resource your change team because too often we say, oh, we'll just start with maybe a couple of resources and see how we get on. Whereas a lot of the bulk of the work is done up front. So make sure you have adequate resources. Don't skimp on change management. Right. And then last question for you both. It's kind of a loaded question, but when, ideally, when should change management start on a transformation? Who wants to answer that? ASAP. One? ASAP. <laughs> Yesterday. <laughs> yep. If yeah. you're thinking transformation, you should have already thought change management. Yeah, 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 I completely agree. I think loads of times I've seen cases where um, the change manager, sometimes myself, have been brought in far too late and you're kind of playing catch up constantly. You're always one step behind the curve and it's not helpful for anybody. So always good to be involved up front. Yeah. In fact, you and uh, Sarah, you and I had a, a conversation today with a client that is about, about four or five months behind. And I guess on one hand, you say better, better late than never, but it, you're better off starting it sooner than you think. And a lot of companies think, well, let's get through the design phase first, then we'll get to the change management stuff once we know all the details of the change impacts and all that stuff. But even then, that's still, you're still uh, behind the eight ball at that point in terms of yeah. timing. And, I, you know, I would say the thing I think people often forget is change management is different than every other work stream because it crosses all work streams. You know, mm -hmm. you think of a technology implementation, right? 
you've got functional work streams, you've got security, you've got IT, but change management actually hits every single one of those because there are people in every single one of those that are going to be impacted by the change. So, and I think that's something people overlook and they try to sort of bucket it into, well, it is its own work stream. Well, I, I like to say it is the umbrella that sits atop all of the other work streams uh, right next to project management. Yeah, that's that's a great point, a great, great place to leave it because, uh, you know, I always, myself included, others, a lot of times will think of the PMO as kind of that overarching umbrella, but really, you know, I know you said change management can sit next to the PMO or next, next to the program management. You could argue the change management should really be the the thing that everything reports up to or kind of feeds up to because it is, you know, everything does involve change. And you mentioned before, Tammy, everything from, you know, the direct operations to HR to IT, you know, those are, there's a lot of impact throughout the organization. So it's definitely an important uh, discipline and one that makes it so cool. So, so much fun at the same time that uh, it's misunderstood. So I think uh, you guys have done a good job of helping, hopefully helping the audience understand a little bit more about change management and why it's important and how to go about it. So thank you both for being on the show today. Really appreciate having you. Likewise. All right. Well, thank you again. We'll be right back with more from Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. Thank you for listening again and uh, appreciate all the, the guests that we've had on the show over the, the last few months of creating this podcast. And I hope these last three interviews that we featured for you here today were helpful. We really wanted to cover the whole gamut of, you know, early stage selection, uh, post-implementation failure, and sort of what those lessons learned. And then we wrapped it up with more of the change management focus, uh, sort of the middle part of uh, a transformation. Um, there's a lot of other guests we didn't get to that you could have argued should have been on this best of episode or last week's best of episode part one. Um, but these are the three that we think are really important. And if you like these episodes and you haven't gone back to listen to some of these older episodes, I encourage you to do that. They're all sitting out there on YouTube and uh, out on the podcast platforms. If, if you subscribe to either uh, location or all the locations, I encourage you to go check out some of these older uh, episodes from season one. Uh, they're pretty timeless in terms of the lessons learned. And hopefully, you know, two, three, four, five years from now, you could still go back and listen to these episodes and get some good nuggets of information that'll help you on your transformation. Um, so I hope that's been been helpful. I also encourage you to uh, connect with me on social media uh, as well. So if you're on LinkedIn, connect with me there. Uh, I'm also on uh, Instagram and TikTok and um, Twitter as well. Uh, so feel free to connect with me on any of those platforms along with LinkedIn and YouTube, which are kind of the two main ones where uh, most people are connected with me. Uh, but I encourage you to check check out some of those other platforms as well, like Instagram and TikTok. I'm relatively new. Uh, I have a relatively new presence on 
those two platforms uh, just to provide some additional content and best practices for you uh, as you're going through your transformations here. So until next time, when we hope to have Parisa Noble back, uh, if she's not back next time, she'll be back the, the episode after that. But next time will be our first episode for season two. We're going to start off a whole new season, new interviews, uh, new guests, same focus on digital transformation and change management strategy, how to be more successful in your your overall transformation. Um, we're actually in the first episode next, next week, uh, we're actually going to feature some snippets and some uh, highlights from our recent Digital Stratosphere Conference, which we just hosted in April of 2021. Uh, we had uh, over 1,200 people that attended and listened in on some or all of that uh, conference, and uh, I want to play some of the highlights from that and some of the the you know the most important segments. So we're going to feature that in next week's episode as we kick off a new season of Transformation Ground Control. So I hope you found this show helpful. I hope you all have a great day, and we will see you next time on Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling, and we will see you soon. Take care.